Hey Chris, it's Laura Austin. I am currently sitting on top of a mountain in Crested Butte, Colorado, watching the sunset on the valley below, just reflecting on the two months I just spent traveling around the country in an Airstream, which you happen to provide a lot of uh, entertainment on. So thank you for doing what you do, um, and I'm going to continue listening to one of your episodes to finish this hike. Hey Chris, this is Gina, a listener recording here from the Eastern Townships, Quebec, Canada, where I am cleaning a bathroom at the moment of listening to your podcast. And my job is in home care. I'm sometimes cleaning, sometimes caring for people, sometimes driving between clients. I usually do listen to podcasts while driving or or cleaning. And uh, yes, I've been enjoying your podcast for the past couple of years and really like how you say what you think with no holds barred and I like how you look at issues on both sides without uh, just saying something to attract attention as you mentioned in your recent Roma and one thing I do want to say is I really appreciated how you said that technology has come so far but we still have this little brush to clean toilets with and we still shit in clean water in white porcelain and at the moment I heard you say that, I was cleaning at a fancy hostel where the showers are made of glass and the sinks are square. And I really appreciated that comment. So I'm also going to school for music. I love when you play indie artists on your show. Maybe one day I'll be able to send you something. So take care. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Chris. Radio Mano Papachango. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, boys is and girls is. This is Chris. This is my podcast, Tangentially Speaking. I'm coming to you from my van, Scarlett Johansson, who is uh, parked on the corner of, let me see, where are we? Like maybe 34th. Uh, I can't see the signs. Sorry. Um, yeah, we're parked uh, right near Hawthorne Boulevard, right near or Hawthorne Street uh, in Portland, right near the Baghdad, which was the site of uh, sort of a, it was a transformational evening for me when Sex of Dawn had just come out and um, it, I was living in Spain and people were getting really excited about it and uh, people invited me to come and speak. Speak, and it wasn't an organizational thing. I think my first speaking tour, John, there's Johns Hopkins uh, invited me to come and, and give a talk as part of some series they were doing. And then uh, Peter Sagel, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR, uh, who had read the book and uh, written a very kind review of it uh he and i corresponded a bit and so he said hey if you're in if you're going to be in the u.s come to chicago and we'll do a an event together and uh he's a big shot so anytime peter wants to do an event people come out so i went to baltimore did the thing at johns hopkins and i went to chicago did the thing with peter uh 
And then from there on, it was groups of, of people who independently were like, hey, we want to have a an event featuring you, and we'll put it all together if you'll come. So uh, I went to Vancouver uh, first, and then Portland, and then San Francisco, um, three of those events organized by local folks. And it was fucking amazing, just amazing. I mean, it sort of it was building <clears throat> the event in... And Baltimore was cool, you know, it was at the university, it was what you'd expect, a bunch of students and faculty and, you know, Q&A and yada, yada, yada. And then the thing with Peter was fantastic. It was in a church in Chicago. Uh, that was really fun. And and also, you know, it's a lot easier to, to sit there and, you know, in conversation with Peter Sagal, uh, you know, because he's entertaining and super smart and so... It was more of a podcast kind of thing with an audience, and then, uh, and then Vancouver, I gave a presentation, and then uh, Portland, I came to give a presentation, and Port uh, Vancouver, I think there were maybe two hundred and fifty people or something, and uh, when I got to Portland and met the people who had organized it, or, you know, a group of sort of I don't know sexual activists um you know lgbt people just people who felt some uh i don't know i guess they felt supported by the arguments in in sex at dawn and they were excited to to promote them and share them and uh they told me that the venue was sold out which i thought well that's great but i didn't know that the venue held i don't know if it was 800 or 900 people it was incredible when I walked out on that stage and there were all those people, like there was a balcony, there was a balcony full. I, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? It's a Wednesday, a rainy fucking Wednesday evening in November and I'm not famous. Nobody's heard of me. I'm not fucking Jared Diamond or somebody, but holy shit. And that was when... Uh, I was standing there on stage, and they're all applauding, and I'm looking out like, this is fucking crazy. And that's when it occurred to me, and I said it immediately. I said, it just occurred to me <clears throat> why you're all here, and it's not to see me. It's because you have all figured out that the kind of person who's going to come to an event like this is smart and sexy and open-minded so you're here to see each other. So let's all just take a break. And, you know, before I start talking, why don't you all just turn around and say hello to each other? And so <laughs> they took a few minutes and everybody, you know, greeted each other. And I don't know if how many people got laid that night but uh, because of that, but I, I'm betting it's double digits at least. Um, you know, you start off with two, so you're already you know, well on your way when you add those things up. Anyway, this episode is with Wallace J. Nichols, who is one of my favorite new people. This is, you know, I say this a lot, but this podcast has enriched my life so much. I hope it's enriching yours. Uh, I, a lot of the people I have on the podcast become friends. And I think Jay is one of those people. Um, this is actually two conversations you'll hear because 
the first conversation was at his house. Um, I drove up there. He lives near Santa Cruz. I was in Santa Cruz visiting friends and uh, doing other stuff. And so I drove up to his place, and uh, we had the conversation. Sort of more of the, the typical podcast conversation. We talked a lot about his work, uh, his book, um, you know, what the the focus of, of his intellectual pursuits are in terms of um, his marine biology. He's a marine biologist, and his focus is on water. So, and when you think about it, you know, what could be a more <clears throat> important uh, sort of all-encompassing thing to study than water. We are water. We're all about water. The whole planet's about water. Everything, virtually everything that lives is living in relation to water in one way or another. Um, anyway, so fascinating conversation. And I felt a little frustrated because, you know, he had a meeting he had to get to, and there was so much more I, I really wanted to go you know, Joe Rogan on him with this one. <clears throat> and um, so he went and had his meeting, and then he texted me, and he said, hey, because we were all going to this dinner party later that evening, and he said, hey, um, I've got a little time between now and the dinner party if you want to continue the conversation. Fuck yeah. So we lined up a, another place. This place was outside, and my friend Kyle Tierman's uh, dad's place, he's got a little pond with a little uh, island in the middle and so we sat there appropriately and you'll hear the second part of the conversation took place outside on this little island and this this is where a lot of magic started happening from my perspective because you'll hear that uh, some things came up very organically some very personal things from Jay's life um that just came up organically. I had no idea about any of it, and and we followed that path. And, uh, yeah, so by the end of this podcast, you'll not only know a lot more about water and marine biology and um, the sort of things that, that Jay uh, focuses on in his professional life, but you'll also, I think, feel that you know the man a little bit because um, he shares some... He's very generous, very, very kind and open and authentic. So welcome to this episode. Um, as I said, I'm sitting in Portland, Oregon. Cassie has just joined me. She flew up yesterday. Uh, I was with my buddy uh, Justin, um, episode 99. If you listen to that, he's a fireman who uh, also... Uh, you know, became a very close friend uh, through the podcast. And so he and I did a road trip. Uh, we're camping, having a lot of fun. Another friend joined us for part of it. And uh, we were just rolling along from uh, San Francisco up here to Portland. And now he's back to fighting fires. And Cassie joined me. So Cassie and I are headed east from here. We're going to go uh, over to eastern Oregon and then uh, some people just invited us to a pig roast near Joseph. So maybe we'll hit that and then continue into Idaho, uh, the Sawtooth Range, Stanley, uh, Sun Valley, then over into southwest Montana, 
maybe Missoula, Bozeman, not sure, uh, then down into uh, Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. Uh, I've been corresponding with a guy the uh, last couple of days who um, is, I guess it seems like he's running an educational center out in the middle of near near um um uh near grand tetons uh i can't remember the name of the jackson yeah uh jackson hole there um that where public defenders and uh sort of public-minded attorneys come and do training sessions and information sharing um so maybe i'll go out there and if he can line up a couple of interviews with some of those folks, I'll head out there and do some podcasting out there because I really want to talk to people who are in the trenches fighting these these battles, um, you know, trying not to let everything that's decent and, uh, you know, protects our rights slip away as this tide of bullshit and corruption washes over the country. Uh, there are people working really hard to try to protect things and and institutions that are actually working in our in our interests as individuals and not in the interests of these corporations that um, don't really give a fuck how well you live you know I just want to suck your energy and attention and and the life right out of you anyway uh yeah so then from there south through Colorado the Rockies that's the itinerary if you are anywhere along that itinerary or there's someone that you know along that itinerary that you think would be an incredible guest on the podcast please don't hesitate to get in touch in the latter case if it's someone you know please check with them first and make sure that they want to do it because I get emails from people saying dude you got to talk to my uncle you know he was a uh, in the Vietnam and he did this and he did that he's this amazing guy and that's great but if your uncle doesn't want to talk to me then let's not bother the poor guy you know what I mean um, check in with him first give him some episodes to listen to so he can feel the vibe and see what kind of person I am and then if he's comfortable with it or she if, if it's your aunt um, you know, then put us in touch. But uh, I don't ever uh, try to convince people to be on the podcast. That's, you know, rule number one. Nobody, I don't want anyone doing anything that they're not comfortable with. A lot of this stuff is very private, very personal. If people aren't ready to share it with the world in general, then uh, I don't want to pry into their lives. But if you do know somebody and they'd be interested and willing to share their story, um, yeah, don't hesitate to get in touch you can do that through my webpage. there's a contact form there if you go to that chrisryan.com or if you're a patreon supporter you've got a direct access to message me directly through patreon and i don't read all the emails i get uh, a lot of those are um, filtered by the lovely natasha my assistant um, but i do read everything that comes to me directly through patreon so there's another advantage to being a Patreon supporter. Uh, I haven't pushed it much lately, but it really helps. It pays for the diesel in the van and the repairs and when we're on the road and, uh, you know, everything else that keeps this operation rolling. So if you've got some spare scratch 
and you don't mind sharing it if this podcast is an important part of your consciousness and your week and you're getting some some education and some uh pleasure however it comes to you from the podcast it would be great if you would uh throw some money in the tip jar via patreon.com or uh you can also use the amazon affiliate link that is on my website that chris ryan.com or tangentially speaking.com if you're using a phone it's down at the bottom if you're on a computer it's on the right margin and uh yeah if you bookmark that as your amazon link then a small percentage of whatever you spend at amazon will come to the podcast all right i'm doing this in a slightly different way because i'm in the van i'm not doing this at my computer uh i can't record in a cafe so i don't know what song i'm gonna play <laughs> I, I have no idea and uh but i'm gonna play some good music and i'm gonna play a couple of these um voice memos that people have sent in i've been getting a lot of really good ones in fact you've probably already heard a couple yeah I'm going to put them at the beginning before this intro. So you've heard those. Thanks for those. If you want to send one, uh, just record it on your phone. Keep it under 30 seconds. Tell me who you are, what you're doing, and, uh, you know, if something about the podcast, if you want. If not, doesn't matter. Just really want to get a sense of who's out there listening to this thing. It's all, it always surprises me. You know, people are hiking along this trail or that trail. They're in New Zealand. They're in Ireland. They're, you know, they're at work. I got one from someone who's cleaning toilets. I don't, I'll play that one if I remember when I get to the cafe. If not, that'll come soon. I mean, there are just the, the multiplicity of people and the things that you're all doing out there while you listen to the podcast. That's fucking inspiring. You know, you're not sitting in a, room alone like i am right now i'm not in a room really i'm in the van scarlett johansson oh speaking of which my uncle uncle dan who uh if you've listened to every damn episode you've heard him uh and if not go back to the archives that's a really good episode old uncle dan um he suggested that i do a t-shirt that said vanthropology of anthropology shirt so i talked to bruno the guy who uh designed the civilized to death logo and some other people sent in some designs too which were really great but then bruno got involved and since we had this ongoing thing with him and his design is fantastic um so we pursued that design and it's pretty much ready to go so we're going to print that uh, up and we'll have anthropology t-shirts i don't know in a couple of months i guess yeah as far as the music goes whatever i play i will uh, as always list it on the website for this episode wallace j nichols episode uh at tangentially speaking dot com if you want to keep track of our whereabouts, uh, you can follow us on Instagram. I'm that Chris Ryan. On Twitter, I'm that Chris Ryan. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm that Chris Ryan. I'm sure there are other Chris Ryans. There, in fact, I know there are other Chris Ryans because I have a Google News uh, alert set to Christopher Ryan. So when the name Christopher Ryan comes up in the news, I see it. 
And there are a lot of Christopher Ryans getting arrested for really stupid shit, I have to tell you. Uh, I don't know if that happens with every name, but hey, if you're a Christopher Ryan out there, don't do stupid shit. Leave the meth alone. Stop beating your wife. Don't steal cars. Stop breaking into liquor stores. I mean, Jesus, Christopher Ryans are doing stupid shit out there. Uh, that's it. I'm that Christopher Ryan, and you're you, and I hope everything's going great for you out there in the world, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Wallace J. Nichols. Fuck yeah.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in, uh, is this Redwood Forest? Yes, we are surrounded by Redwood trees. In Davenport, is that the town? North of Davenport, California. Yeah, beautiful area. And I'm with uh, Jay Nichols, Wallace Jay Nichols, but you go by Jay. I go by my middle initial, yeah. Uh, Who is a marine biologist with some funky-ass socks on, I gotta say. I can tell you some sock stories. Yeah, let's talk about socks. Uh, This is a, a local company. And uh, get their name right. I think Merch Five, I think is the name. But they they make these sort of custom socks. And every pair of socks has a um, sort of a cause to it. And so they they're sort of in the the sock socks and causes business. Really, so they support sea turtles and ocean stuff and kids. And so they line up their climate change socks and um, they line up their socks with causes. So. Changing the world one stinky foot at a time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just when you thought your sock drawer was safe from causes in politics. Nope. Sorry. (laughs) Well, they're beautiful socks. I'll say that for them. Thank you. Uh, Maybe we'll get some help change the world with socks. Uh, You're also a model. I've done, I've put myself through uh, a little bit of grad school by. Uh By helping uh, the Gap sell some stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, and changing the world. Yeah, it was. You know, now I'm a sock model. Sock model, yeah. exactly. So I, I know our time's limited, so I'm gonna yeah. like I love to just meander and sort of let the conversation go. But since I know we have a deadline, yeah. um, I'll be a little more focused than usual. Sounds good. I can hear people out there saying, "Good, <laughs> right, good." <laughs> um, you're a marine biologist, and you're. I haven't read your book, but. Yeah. As an author, I think um, you'll appreciate the fact that I did buy it. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thank I you. Would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can go off down that that hole, um, like what you're getting yourself into when you write a book, thinking that you're going to sell many copies. There's yeah. a whole other conversation. but uh, And also the, the people who pretend they've read it and they right. don't realize how quickly you know they haven't. Sim- a simple question will will tip, tip you off. The, yeah, they don't yeah. know. It's a classic case of they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, exactly. So they ask you a question. It's like, yeah, that's chapter one, yeah, man. Right, like, exactly. Really? That's you the sure title of chapter it? one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a review of our book, that one of the first reviews that came out, and the woman was really angry. And uh, it was Megan McArdle in The Atlantic. And she she said, you know, how can you write a book questioning monogamy without even addressing the question of jealousy? And chapter 10 is called <laughs> Jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh... You got to read it all the way to the end <laughs> before you take a shot. Yeah. Chapter 10. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I have a copy of... Uh, uh, your latest book. What's remind me of the title? Blue Mind. Blue Mind. Is, yeah. yeah. Exactly. 
uh, which is on that list of things to read when I finish the one I'm yeah. I'm writing. Well, I can I can explain the book in thirty seconds and maybe save you a little bit of time. <laughs> Thank you for buying I, it. I, I already it. paid for yeah. it, man. <laughs> I want to read it. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, it, basically, as a marine biologist, I I noticed it myself, and you know, all the people around me that when we were near, in, on, or underwater, or even thinking about being that way, we felt better. Right. right. Not a big surprise. I think maybe everybody listening would say, yeah, me too. Um, and I was curious about what, what is that thing? Is it, is it, do we were just taught that? Is that just sort of a uh, really good marketing by Mountain Dew or, uh, is there something more to it? And it turns out, you know, short answer is, yeah, there's, there's more to it. Water does a lot of great things to our minds and before our minds and our bodies. Right. And makes kind of makes everything a little bit better. And you can go down the list, assuming that's where you want to be. So the whole theory goes out the window if if there's a, a wave filling your house that you don't want in your house. That, yeah. That's red mind. That's not blue mind. And so basically that's that's the premise. Red mind is, is anger, panic. Yeah, so the opposite. Um, distraction, anxiety, but red mind is also really good for us. It gets it got us to the moon, it gets us to uh, the finish line and to deadlines and it, it, it powers us. Um, but if you're only in red mind all the time, things will start to fall apart. Right. Uh, in your life, in your body. So red mind also represents anxiety, stress. And and if it's chronic, then it's debilitating. Right. And yeah. you can imagine a continuum from light blue to really deep, dark blue. And you can imagine a continuum from maybe, you know, pink mind to deep, dark, you know, angry red mind. Right. Uh, and then the third color I use is gray, gray mind, which is what happens when you have red mind all the time. Eventually you just check out mm. and become numbed out, indifferent. You don't care. Right. Uh, mildly or deeply depressed. And then from there you know sometimes really bad things happen right yeah so it's almost the gray of ashes after you burn out yeah right. yeah 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 did you i know you're i should also before we before i forget to mention shout out to our mutual friend kyle tierman yes host of the kyle tierman show <laughs> ladies and gentlemen uh, I listened to your recent episode with him on the oh, drive up yeah. uh, two days ago, and it was it was one of those 21st century moments where Cassie and I are driving up the 101, listening to you guys chatting, and my phone rang, and there beeps, and there's a message from you saying, "Hey, I think I can meet on Wednesday," <laughs> and then the thing from Kyle comes in, "Hey, man, you know, are you going to be here tonight or whatever?" And it's like, "Wow, we're listening to these guys in conversation." <laughs> While these things are beeping up, and here we are talking cool. about it on 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 said Wednesday, and by... Kyle's going to listen to this <laughs> yes, exactly. and hopefully receive texts from yeah. both of us. Yeah. While oh, that's by the way, happening. that's the creek over there that we were standing by when you know. I mean, it's yeah, just a little meta here. But... Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> this is a really awesome, awesome place. Anyway, I I didn't know that you and Kyle had known each other for so long, and. Uh, you've sort of seen him blossom into the powerhouse. He's yeah, I mean, mostly becoming. as you probably have experienced in this, in sort of the mentor mentee, the mentoring process. Uh, a lot of it's just sort of getting getting out of the way for mm. the uh, the young person that's got a spark and passion and a set of skills and some desire, um, and maybe just being a, a good listener. Mm. And, you know, so n maybe 90% of mentoring is, is that when 
you work with a guy like Kyle. Um, he has very specific questions sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time he, he already has the answers and it's just being, uh, I got, I've gotten to present a few awards to him. <laughs> so I've had that, that role being the, the older grayer guy presenting the award to, you know, the young guy ch changing the world. Yeah. Um, and so I admire him an awful lot and proud of everything that he's done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he, uh, all right, two more minutes of this and then we're done with Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've learned from him, um, how, you know, when I was young and older people were putting a lot of time and effort into helping me out, I always felt kind of sheepish about it. Yeah. Like, you know, this, this is a one way relationship and you guys are giving me so much and I don't know how I'm ever going to you know, pay you back because you don't need anything that I have, you know, and being the older person, um, I think with Kyle, it's the first time I've really experienced this, um, you know, personally, as opposed mm -hmm. to people listen to the podcast or somebody in a class or a lecture or something, um, like how much you get out of it being the older mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. how gratifying it is mm -hmm. to, um, to invest some time and energy in someone that you know is going to multiply that and then carry it forward into the world. It's like making a really good investment. You know, you just know this is going to pay off, even right. if it's not for me personally. Right. You can see it. It's though. you can see it replicating yeah. and multiplying in, in positive yeah. ways. He's good at playing back to you the, the gratitude. No, he's he's a clear. Oh, he's a kiss ass, clear, total clear headed kiss -ass. guy. <laughs> he's good at just kind of like he's good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so people who uh, who don't know about the Kyle Tierman show, check it out. It's yeah. a podcast available where podcasts are found. Um, did you get? I know you're you're very interested in neurobiology, and you were sort of talking about the neurobiology or the the neurological effects of water and all that. Did you get into the neuroscience through? the marine biology or vice versa or simultaneously so i got i got i was always in love with water and that pool was always there and there were a lot of factors you know in in, in my life that were trying to stop me from becoming a marine biologist like hmm. where i lived where i went to school where where did um, you live grew up in new jersey went to college in indiana um you know everybody was like well jacques Cousteau has that job so <laughs> basically you only need one, only need one yeah. and what are you going to do with that? How old are thing? you? I'm 50. So you're okay. I'm 56. Cause I, Jacques Cousteau was an important presence Absolutely. in my childhood. Oh, yeah. He's king of the world basically. Yeah. Those, those, uh, what was it? Were they Nat Geo specials? I remember the music, the drums, the kettle drums, the whole thing. Yeah. It was really yeah. exciting to yeah. watch those. Yeah. And there weren't yeah. other, really other, um, there were lots of people exploring lots of places, but no one that was coming into your living room with it yeah. on a weekly basis with, with panache, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, I, you know, I'm not the only one who was inspired by the Cousteau family. Um, but that, that got under my skin and in, in college I, I was asked, I was a biology major and I was asked to give guitar lessons to a woman who had lost her memory in a car accident 15 years prior when she was my age as a sophomore in, in college and had been institutionalized ever since. 
and was not really getting her memory back. But someone thought maybe she used to be a quite a good accomplished guitarist. Um, and I was invited to give guitar lessons. Uh, it was a one-off thing, um, at her nursing home. And I said, sure. And I took my guitar over and got a, a friend's guitar. So we had two and sat with Barbara for an hour and thought, well, that was interesting. She's, she is basically a six year old mind in a 30 something year old woman's body. And they invited me to come back again. And so eight months later of weekly guitar lessons with Barbara Dougherty in Greencastle, Indiana, um, it was absolutely magical. And the magic was what music did for her, to her. Um, the memories that came back, nurses would come in just to check and see which memory had been recovered on that day. Um, and we would play a song and then we would stop, she would stop and start remembering her music teacher, the shop on the corner in, in Bloomington, Indiana, where she got her sheet music, uh, just a whole, you know, we'd be playing Simon and Garfunkel and then that would send her off down that path. And sometimes we'd just play through a song. Sometimes we would get nowhere because the memories would come. And I remember going back to campus as a biology major, you know, 19 year old kid thinking, I think I'm going to be a marine biologist or a biologist. And think, wow, that's cool. Mm. And looking around, asking my professors, what the fuck's going on here? Like, this is amazing. Right. Like, I'm a, I'm a clunky guitar teacher and, um, I'm cracking the code. What's going on? Right. And I didn't get any satisfactory answers. I dive into the neuroscience journals and there was not a lot. This is anything. before Oliver Sacks was oh, yeah. writing about this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. This is mid eighties. And so, you know, to your point that it's become a thing. You can get a, a master's degree in music therapy now that's based in pretty amazing, mind blowing science. But back then it was not a thing. And so I filed that away kind of and thought, wow, the brain is amazing. We know so little. We don't even know how music and the brain interact. In fact, if you say something about that in public, people will roll their eyes at you and say, get, get back in the, get back in the box. You're, you're going, you're going out, you know, in, in, in woo woo land here by, right. by talking this way. And so by public, you mean within academia, within academia yeah. and, 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 you know, in, in quote unquote, serious conversations with serious institutions and agencies and, yeah. um, and so, yeah, I mean, for all, all of time, we've known that music makes us feel really good and unlocks every emotion we have. We've known that. And that's, you know, to talk to any musician and anybody who's ever listened to music or danced to music or, you know, yeah. played music just for fun. Uh, same is true for water. So I take all of what you are thinking about music in the brain and just replace one word, music, replace it with water. Hmm. And it's almost just, you know, verbatim, perfect science. Uh, water unlocks our emotions. It's a place we go to grieve. It's a place we go to celebrate. Uh, it's a place we go for romance. It's a place we go um, to 
unlock our creativity. If you're, if you've got writer's block or musician block, just go hang out by the water for a few minutes. And I, I promise it will help. Mm. It won't solve all your problems, but it'll, it'll help. And there's a rhythmic component to Absolutely. water as well, yeah. whether it's waves or waterfalls, yeah. they're, they're a, cyclical kind of. There's a lyrical, um, musical tone to, if you listen to a river carefully, particularly one that has, uh, some white water and, um, some cobble that's being moved by that white water. Uh, there's a tonality to it. Those rocks are banging on each other, making sounds that are quite lyrical, yeah. musical. Um, we hear voices in the water. There's that, that's almost a, a cliche. Right. But there's a reason why we're, we're, our, our brains are looking for patterns all the time. And we find patterns sometimes where they don't actually exist. So we hear voices and that's, that's cool, right? That's been going on for, you know, just look through throughout um, the, the history of literature, you'll, you'll find references to wh why do we say a babbling brook, a, a voice babbles, right? Mm. A child babbles right. and a brook babbles. Right. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. And I, and I, I went looking for uh, a book on brain and, and water, kind of like uh, Dr. Sack's book, Musicophilia and, and others mm. like it. And that spot on the shelf in the library, in the bookstores, in, in, in Amazon was empty. I thought maybe, maybe it's out of print. Maybe it's, it was written in German. Maybe it, <laughs> who knows, but I'm going to find it. Cause it's such a clear, obvious yeah. thing to write about. Yeah. The human yeah. brain, not, a, not a niche topic. It's right. pretty, a pretty big deal. Most complex thing that we know from in the universe. And it's mostly water and it's mostly water and our planet is mostly covered with water and life comes from water and most of life is in water. So yeah. this is not a niche topic. This is right. maybe the biggest mashup you could think of creating, frankly, water in the brain. So I figured there'd be one, at least one, if not a dozen really worthwhile books to read. And I couldn't find the book I was looking for. And I tried to get Dr. Sachs, Oliver Sachs, to write it because he's a oh, really? lifelong water lover. Yeah, he swam. He swam every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. And he was a diver, and yeah. he was—I mean, he really loved water. And he's—and he said famously many times that he got his best ideas when he was in the water. And right. the guy was a good idea factory. I mean, he was just yeah. constantly um, writing and saying brilliant things. And so I pitched the idea to him, and and he said. Uh, if you've heard his voice, you, you can imagine it. He said, that's a fine idea. You do it. Really? And I said, was this in person or yeah, was at a, um, San Francisco, one of his, his lectures uh, uh, a decade ago. Uh, uh and I remember that when he said you do it, it felt like a shotgun blast to my chest. <laughs> <laughs> it was not just a casual, you do it. It was like a, yeah. you do it. And by the way, yeah. um, um, that just is going to take up the next decade of your life. Yeah. That statement that I just made there. And that's the kind of, uh, uh, at least in, in my mind, that's the, the kind of place he occupied in terms of his intellect mm. and, um, the enjoyment I had gotten from, uh, his thinking and writing and speaking over the years. So, so you were a bit of a mentee in that situation. Little did he know that, yeah. uh, how, um, Maybe he did, but he, when he said that it was my 
inside I said to myself, yes, sir. Yeah. Did he know that you had written previous books? Uh, I know. I think it was, I think he liked the idea. I think he felt my sort of clarity of purpose mm. and desired really to read it, mm. not to write it, but. It's a great reason to write a book. Yeah, because Oliver Sacks said you better do well, it. Well, I was going to say because you wanted to read it. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, you know that's what I mean? That's true. No, I, I did. I, I, I do. Um, and that really was a, the motivation. I thought it should exist yeah. on the shelves of books. And and so I was able to to write it, finish it, and get him a copy uh, oh, before really? he passed. Oh, good. So that sort of to bring the story around. Right. Um, and... Uh, uh, he apparently enjoyed it, and uh, I'm sure he had many other things on his mind that, in that last uh, couple of, couple of years there. Yeah, I had a a good friend of his on the podcast a few months ago, Steve Silberman. Um, I guess they'd known each other for a long time, uh, traveled together a lot, and we we got. I've I never met Oliver Sacks, but I certainly enjoyed his. His books. I live in Topanga Canyon, mm -hmm. where he lived uh, for several years. I don't know if he was a resident, maybe at UCLA or something. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there was a book he wrote called uh, "Was It Hallucinations?" Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, where he talks about uh, taking psilocybin mushrooms in mm -hmm. Topanga, and mm -hmm. that was like, whoa, okay, we're sort of neighbors if you <laughs> take the time <laughs> yeah, out of right. it. Yeah fascinating guy when i first started thinking about writing a book i contacted a friend of mine who was in publishing and told him i had this idea for a book and he i'll never forget he said to me chris no one should write a book unless they absolutely have to that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know what he meant yeah and you know better really you don't really know what someone means when they offer that advice yeah. Know, a priori, but you do yeah. now. Well, isn't that, I mean, getting back to the whole mentor, mentee, kind of older, younger, that, that sort of seems to be what life is, you know? It's mm -hmm. like you you hear the advice when you're young, you think you know what it means, but you don't. Mm -hmm. And then you get older and you give that advice knowing that the younger person doesn't really know what you mean, but someday they will. And it's just this cycle of frustration. Yeah, right. Well, I think you, you, when you, when you re realize that you, it shifts a little bit, your advice giving style. So I'm, mm. as a dad, I know, I know the things I say many, many, many times are just going in one ear, not the other. And so I think, well, how can I say it in a way that 20 years from now, it will, it will pop up and they'll say that a you know, a couple dots will be connected and it'll, it'll, it'll be useful right? rather than just completely useless in the moment and forever. And, uh, and so just thinking about creating moments and creating memories yeah. rather than just doling out verbal advice. Yeah. And, uh, I, um, and the example that comes to mind gets a little personal pretty quick here, but my oldest daughter, had her period and it was delayed and she had some health stuff that I won't go into, but, um, it was a big deal for us that her body decided that it was ready to invest energy in that and as a sign of her health. Mm. And so when it happened, it was just, it was kind of like really exciting mm. and, uh, I took her for a walk and we went down to the ocean 
and in my pocket was playing the doors uh, break on through so there was that that was the soundtrack to our our walk to the ocean and uh we stood there and i gave her a little box that she assumed was a piece of jewelry and she opened it and and there was a red marble in it and i've given out a million blue marbles all over the world and only one red marble Hmm. and it was an amber kind of an amber red as antique marble that i found in an antique shop and she said dad you are so weird (laughs) (laughs) but i will never forget this moment yeah and that was it. There, yeah. I, there wasn't even about advice, words. Now you're, oh, honey, now you're a woman. And right. With that comes responsibilities. And I was just like, you know what? Let's listen to the doors, look at the ocean. And I'm, here's a blue, uh, inside of a blue marble, a red marble. Yeah. And it sits right by her sink. And there it is. And, you know, every day it's a little reminder that dad's weird, but there's something else going on that maybe she should pause and listen once in a while yeah and and if she hasn't figured it out yet eventually i'm sure she will figure out that she's weird too yeah right exactly your kindred (laughs) spirits that's the other half you know you're you're weird but i will never forget this because me too i'm weird too when i think of uh things that people said to me that i was oblivious toward in the moment but then that came back one of the commonalities that I find is that they were said with great kindness. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, I recognized the kindness, even if I didn't, if, even if I wasn't capable of really um, understanding the content, I recognized that in this moment, that person was um, really sincere and and offering me something yeah. that they felt was valuable and it was like i it was as if they'd put something in my hand that i couldn't see but i could tell that it was important to them so i put it in my pocket and kept it for years and then took it out later and now i can see it mm-hmm. but i kept it cuz i felt like yeah this is important i don't really get it but it's important enough that i'm going to hold on to this and you perceive that somehow Somehow, with all your senses and you know the sounds the body language the micro emotions that you may not even have known you were taking i think that maybe that part of our of our cognitive capacity matures faster than the the other stuff so you're able to tell like you know little kids they can tell when someone's sincere, their facial expressions. And of course, Oliver Sacks wrote about this a lot. People who are completely incapable of anything else can tell when someone's being sincere or they're full of shit. Your pets can tell if you're right, if you mean it or not. Yeah. And they're watching your your eyes and your face. Exactly. So if they're doing it, we're, we're doing it too. Yeah. Um, It reminds me of our, back to our mutual friend, Kyle Tierman. We've had this conversation over the years about being earnest uh, or being accused of being earnest, which we both have been, and as a, as as not a not meant as a compliment. Mm. It's like you're you're too earnest, um, and our, our agreed response is double down, double down on your earnestness right. in the face of somebody accusing you of being too earnest. That's it. That's the answer. Well, and what's the opposite of earnest? I, yeah, Full of shit. I, yeah, superficial, cynical, cynical, and layers of perhaps bullshit and yeah um cynicism and and uh 
I think a lack of empathy. You know, what is what is the lack of empathy? Well, it, at its extreme, perhaps is is um, you know sociopathy, uh, psychopathy. You know, at some point, that's where you get. Um, but without going all the way over there, um, you know, I, I think when you when you don't look up and look around and care about anything beyond the tip of your nose. Uh, you start to move away from sort of being being earnest. Um, Do you think that we're entering an age of of that sort of emotional numbness because we're we're entering an age of extreme pain and people are withdrawing from the reality of what's happening to the planet? I think that's part of it. I think the the people who um, don't have a way to productively and healthfully manage that pain and respond to it um, are one one way is just to kind of be oblivious and, and destructive and just lash out and not care or at least mm. act like they don't care. Um, and at the same time, there seems to be a incredible deepening of soulfulness and and pursuit of it in response to the pain with some success with yeah. um, whether it's just saying okay every day I'm going to jump in this really cold ocean even if it's just for a minute and that's my medicine or I'm going to throw myself into uh, playing music with my friends in some sort of ecstatic state and that's my medicine I'm going to eat really, really, really good food that I can uh, walk to get. In all these different ways that people are saying, wow, this, is, this world's a little crazy and it hurts, but I'm going to do a, f- a few things uh, that, that seem far out maybe, but really aren't. They're really basic, primal. Right. Um, and so I see that going on and, and catching on and, you know, and, conversations with with lots of people who are just clear-headed clear-minded not avoiding the the horrors of what's happening on planet earth but also finding incredible amount of joy um in in their lives so there's both both things going on and some you know it's a bridging the gap and that i find that that's the work that i didn't know i was getting into when i wrote blue mind um even simple things at a book signing, you know, you're standing there or sitting there, there's a you know, handful of people waiting to get their book. Some of them are bringing a story about how water has healed them that they don't want to tell to anybody else other than you. Uh, you don't really see it coming. Sometimes you can kind of see it coming, but then they're standing there and they say, Jay or Dr. Nichols, um, I need to tell you this story. And then they just unload it and it's awesome and it's you know everybody's crying or at least we are and then that the woman ends you sign a book and and you have a mini little therapy session there uh, i didn't know that was going to happen i didn't plan on that at all it's very uh um unexpected and raw and uh emotional and personal and uh and i'm wasn't and still not prepared to be engaged in that, but I am. 
Um, and it makes me very optimistic when every mm. time I hear about somebody who says I've reconnected with my beloved water and it's made my life a lot better. Thank you for the nudge. Mm-hmm. I think, wow. Okay. Let, how do we, how do we do more of that? Whatever that is. And it makes me a bit optimistic. Uh, and it's a way that people are, they're taking their pain to the water and it's helping whether it's physical or emotional, uh, pain. And, uh, it's helping at least a little bit. It's interesting. You said everyone's crying and it occurred to me that, you know, here's this emotional story about water and you're acknowledging it by producing water (laughs) (laughs) from your eyes. Yeah. It's, uh, and it also <laughs> reminded me, and this, this tells you how my mind works. It also reminded me of a guest I had on just recently, um, Angela White, who's a porn uh, actor and uh, producer and director. And she's, she's great, super, super smart, studied um, gender studies in university, in master's degree. So the porn for her is work as well as passionate interest, mm-hmm. you know. Um, anyway, she was talking about her first um, sexual experiences, orgasms, water. And I think a lot of girls, their first orgasms happen right. under the faucet right. of the bathtub. Yeah. So there's this deep sort of intimate relationship yeah. with flowing water. Yeah. So that the topic of um, sex, romance, sensuality, and water, uh, I touch on it pretty lightly in in blue mind but there's basically a chapter in my next book called live blue um that uh gets into it and there's you know the history of of Mm. of water and sex and sensuality and romance and and uh you know i'm not just talking about hanging out in the hot tub with a, a glass of wine we're talking about just even just like you know spending time sitting with somebody next to the water yeah. switches you into um, super romantic mode. And uh, it's a, yeah, you, you get very real, very quickly. I find sitting next to a river, there's something or a stream, anything okay. flowing there. Right. There's something um, that just sort of washes away pretension really mm-hmm. quickly. And at the same time, it creates a, a privacy bubble in mm-hmm. a way. So you, you That's have a good point, um, particularly if the water is moving, in making sound. Um, if we were walking down a beach this far apart, we could hear each other. But if there was someone, you know, this far times two away from us, mm. they couldn't hear a word we were saying. Yeah. That's uh, the same thing by a river or even in, um, or in the rain, ur- urban set or in the rain in yeah. an urban setting. So if you take a, an intimate walk with one umbrella right. in the rain, that conversation uh, in this world of, Privacy, privacy diminishment. Uh, we need spaces like that, blue spaces, yeah. where we can go and say, you know, this conversation really is just between us, and uh, the water is one way to do that. Uh, and so, get the person you want to want to talk to, be with, and get to the water, and um, get in the water if you can. Uh, you're, you know, these devices don't care much for the water. So you're probably going to have to go tech free into the water. It's my recommendation is go, go super low tech, uh, and swim out or paddle out, um, 
walk into the water and do it regularly if with the people you love and the people you're you're close to and uh it'll it'll help your relationships yeah i i grew up um in swimming pools not not in ocean or rivers so much or lakes uh, a little bit in lakes but uh, i grew up in pennsylvania and my parents had a swimming pool so i was in the water every day uh, most of the day and so i'm very comfortable in water yeah. although i saw jaws when i was about 10 same which fucked me up for <laughs> life <still. laughs> yeah kyle was telling me earlier that peter benchley devoted most of his life to trying to um compensate for the damage he felt he'd done with that book yeah, and, and yeah. then the movie uh, and his wife continues that work oh Wendy, really Wendy eventually is a uh, passionate unstoppable ocean advocate hmm. and, uh, so she's continued his his ocean advocacy work yeah it's unfortunate it, it really feeds into the Hobbesian vision of of the natural world as being hostile and something that needs to be um you know, we need to be suspicious of and protect ourselves against and, mm -hmm. and have complete dominion over or it'll rise up and destroy us. Um, but what I was going to say is that, um, you know, I'm very comfortable in the water and um, Casilda, my wife who you met and, and uh, an ex-girlfriend who grew up in the Bronx, the two of them had never, aren't swimmers, they're not comfortable in the water. I've spent a lot of time trying to teach you know people that i love to be comfortable in the water and it it always strikes me there's this profound um thing that happens where it, and i think this is sort of um uh, a microcosm of of a much larger relationship with life where the most dangerous thing you can do in the water is be uncomfortable mm -hmm. the more uncomfortable you are the less safe you are. So the, the causality gets flipped, right? If you can relax, there's nothing to worry about. You know, even if someone like you or me, if we're swimming out in the, in the deep ocean and we start thinking about great white sharks coming up, our heart starts pounding, we start breathing wrong. God knows we're probably attracting sharks by the electrical impulses coming out of our heart, that panicky energy emanating out into the ocean. But also we're, we're more likely to get exhausted and, you know, freak out. And, you know, if you're getting sucked out on a riptide, the worst thing to do is panic. Right. So there's this relationship with water that that's very immediate. But I think it, it's replicated in the rest of life, as I say, where like being relaxed literally makes it safer yeah and you so you're in that moment of red mind panic you're trying to remember okay what was number eight part b on that list of what to do and you know riptide that i had to memorize back on on the beach on that sign in the small print right it's not going to happen yeah sorry that's not, your brain is not you going can't, can't cannot, get there yeah can't, it can't it's it's, it's you just it's not available so that point you know, relax, calm, then you might actually be able to visualize that sign that said, here are the eight things you should do. <laughs> Number eight, super important, calm down, you know, yeah. um, don't do what you feel like you need to do. Yeah. That, and that, yeah. you know, that's true in the water. That's true. This, you know, that's true on land. That's true in, in every, every situation. And now we have the neuroscience to kind of back that up. 
but along with that goes the so I have a lot of friends who work on shark research and shark conservation. And the strategy was, okay, we've got this completely irrational fear of sharks that's contributing to their destruction, or at least it's not helping. Uh, let's just bring in some several wheelbarrows full of facts and try to convince those people that sharks actually are pretty cool, that, you know, here's the statistics on shark attacks and shark bites and deaths, and there's just, you know, lots and lots of facts on the shark side. Um, so you heap on a whole bunch of facts, and it doesn't work. Mm. Facts don't change that deep emotional mm. response. you got to do something else, and the something else isn't more science. Uh, not to say that we don't want and need that science. Of course, we want to know everything we can about these animals to use that in other ways, but to change um, the, the emotional response to love from fear, it's not going to happen because people read just that one more fact that you uh, put in your, your peer review uh, paper. So scientists are learning that that's... Uh, that's true. And the reason why we know that's true is because there are other scientists who have studied uh, how the brain works. And so those scientists could tell these scientists that you keep hammering people with facts and know what you're doing. You're driving them away. You're not driving them towards the, the sustainable goal. You're um, pushing them away. And so it's the same thing with climate change, any kind of, any kind of behavior. We just load, uh, load more facts isn't isn't going to do it and uh so that i just was reminded of that with with the shark conversation and and really it holds for for any other um any other piece of good that you want to try to do in the world if you if you come at it as with a lot of acronyms and and a lot of data and a lot of facts um people are probably not going to listen for very long. Right. right. And also a lot of anger. I, mm -hmm. I, you and Kyle talked a bit about your frustration with environmental organizations that um, try to shame people right. or guilt trip people. And your your angle is more create a narrative that's inclusive. You, yeah. you talked about your work with the sea turtles in right. Costa Rica, was yeah, it? In or? Costa Rica and Mexico. In Mexico. Throughout Latin America. Right. How you were able to slowly convince the people who are hunting them and destroying them to actually protect them. Mm -hmm. And that's, so you're, you're, um, you're more of a, your approach to environmentalism is more of a, uh, Martin Luther King Gandhi approach rather than like, you know, earth first. Right. I guess. Yeah. And I, and I, and you could, you could sort of argue uh, this theoretically all day long and, and probably conclude that, okay, either way might be right. Um, but if, if I look on and just in my own career, what has worked and what has not worked, um, where are the places that are still thriving and improving? Uh, what are the species I've worked with that are increasing? Every, every success story rests on the the blue mind approach i mm. would say all of them uh places where uh people went in sort of guns blazing where day one um i'm going to humiliate you and make you feel like a dumbass because you've got your facts wrong i'm going to do it in public 
with your peers and your friends, whenever that happens, it doesn't go so well. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't become a, um, a movement that rebuilds and restores and regenerates life. It doesn't, it becomes, it becomes a war. And so if that's what you want, if you want conflict that you can fundraise on top of to, to create an organization, right. To do that thing in perpetuity, well, that's a great approach. But if you want to solve a problem and put yourself out of business and then take what you learned and move on to another problem, um, I would take a, a different approach. So, but don't organizations, isn't this part of the problem that organizations, to the extent that they're living things, they don't want to die. Right. So whether we're talking about the, you know, the war on cannabis that came out of the war on alcohol. So suddenly when that finished, they needed to find something else to attack. And um, or we're talking about an environmental organization that the last thing they want is to win their cause. Yeah. Yeah, So there's there's you know, there's a tension there because most of the people who are devoting them their lives to working for an organization that's, you know, in social or environmental change and are generally underpaid and overworked, sure. and, you know, are not, are not doing it for the glory, for the, for the money, for the, for the pay, for the, the benefits package, for the, the security that's, you know, yeah. it's because they care. So let's, you know, start with that. Um, and, but then there's this, there's this piece of, the puzzle where, okay, the organization is, is, is there something in the charter that says, um, when we are successful and this is how we define success, we dissolve generally. No, that would be cool. And say, okay, we will no longer exist. We will have a transition period of three to six months. We will take the assets that remain and divide them among some peer organizations or, I don't know, send them back to the donors or do something really great. You know, like, uh, you know, buy, buy everybody a reusable water bottle and, and call it a day, you know, uh, and, and then everybody can go find another thing to do. Right. right? That, that's not, I, Good does, luck with that. generally doesn't yeah. happen, but yeah. that's how I've approached all the problems I've worked on. Hmm. My, if I can put myself out of a job, I will personally consider that a success. Yeah. Uh, and so the sea turtle work in Mexico worked. That's it. I don't do that much anymore. I'm a cheerleader. Uh, there are still issues. Not all of the sea turtle species in Mexico are doing as well as some of the others. But the the focal point of the work has been successful. The populations are growing. Um, and the reward really will come when down the road, when I get to go hang out on the beach in Mexico with some of the fishermen I've worked with, with our grandchildren, and drink a beer and a sea turtle swims by and we look at each other and clink our bottles together. And that, that's like, I'm that I'm holding on to that mm. as my payday. That is the payment, right? That is better than any big pile of cash or gold or, or plaque or watch that one could get at the end of their life and career. Uh, maybe we'll jump in the water too, you know, after we see that turtle and that's it. Like that really, I'm holding that. It's going to be a good day yeah. and it's going to be really satisfying. Um, 
and the organizations the that beer is going to suck though yeah it's going to be mexican <laughs> yeah. beer you know um, it won't be corona i promise <laughs> you that uh, maybe yeah uh, <laughs> good a little bohemia maybe <laughs> yeah maybe with, yeah definitely yeah darker bottle darker maybe an amber yeah. um, no corona that would no ruin corona. the day no yeah. <laughs> that would ruin the day that's not what i'm imagining in this movie that's playing in my head yeah. but that you know that that that's it that's the that that's a compelling I mean, kind of back to our earlier conversation about that that kind advice that you get that sticks with you and pulls you along at different points in your life that that idea that you know that I'm holding on to mm. and uh that being able to just sit on that beach and see a turtle and know that I, I played a role in the continued existence of a species and that the dudes I'm sitting with were along for the ride and had learned from them and that that clink of a bottle is sort of the, you know, the, the payment yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, that just, you know, it's, it's an, got under my skin that that's, that's what it's about. And if the people I'm imagining, Jesus Lucero, Julio Solis, Rodrigo Rangel, Javier Vivasencio, those are the guys if they were sitting here they would say the same exact thing like that's we can't wait it's going to be good and a couple of times there were, you know economists would come and, and work with us and say so how much are you paying these guys to care the way they do and i was like you can ask them but they might beat the shit out of you for asking that question because that is an insult to their dignity and so you think that the default feeling when you're working with poachers um for example Casilda grew up in Mozambique yeah. and there's you know as I'm sure you're aware there's a terrible poaching problem elephants and you know, it's just horrible uh, my default um assumption is that the people would prefer not to be doing that mm -hmm. they're doing they're they're killing elephants for ivory because that's the only way they can support their mm -hmm. families but they would prefer not to there's like a sort of innate disgust mm -hmm. at that kind of mm -hmm. behavior um do you agree with that i mean do you think i i wouldn't i i'm uncomfortable making a generalization about a group of people let's just call them poachers and saying poachers are anything as a group good point um, so my this is my experience um if there's a thousand poachers contributing to the demise and the extinction of, let's just say, a species that you're interested in, there's going to be a thousand reasons why they they participate. Maybe you know there's a group that are more similar. Mm. There's another group that just like, I you know, there's a group of sociopaths within that thousand. It might be a minority, probably is a minority, and they're probably doing the most damage. And that group will probably end up in jail along the way. And for some reason, maybe even unrelated to being a poacher. But then you've got a whole, a whole bunch of other things going on. So that's the step one is to kind of say, okay, humanize the poachers. Hmm. And the reason they're called poachers is because the thing they used to do yesterday, um, today became illegal. Yeah. And they went from being a hunter right. to a poacher or a, a fisher to a poacher overnight, literally when that law dropped in and they probably didn't have a lot of say in, in that, in that process right, or a lot of warning or heads up yeah. on it either. Um, 
So there's, you know, that things vary greatly in different parts of the world um, between individuals with different species, different circumstances. Um, when you've got groups of people who are well organized coming in with sort of um, big guns and and operating like a militia and poaching the last remaining examples of some species. Well, that now that's a whole different kind of conversation. Right. Um, when narco trafficking intersects with poaching mm. and the poached animals are being trafficked in the same channel, sometimes in the same boat or truck, uh, as drugs, that's a different story. So yeah. you really don't want to get decapitated while you're saving turtles. Right. Li- literally. Right. Uh, that's not helpful. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, try, I avoid any sort of broad generalizations about, uh, what is a poacher and who are the poachers. Right. So, but you're um, saying these guys don't need to be paid. Some of them to be protected. Some of them, the ones, right. there's a group that, you know, are driven by dignity right. and beauty. And right. yes, they've hunted turtles. Yes. They've sold them. Yes. Their bodies are made of turtle mm. because they've eaten mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of them. Uh, but they're also available to the conversation or may be available to the conversation. Right. So to start off with humiliation mm. and calling them stupid because they don't have their facts straight and then thinking, okay, somehow you're going to go from that in, in a, in a culture of machismo, by the way, mm. and somehow you're going to go from that place to saving a species. Um, and by the way, not get thrown out or dead in the process. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, if you want to start a war and sort of, you know, vilify people in the media and park carefully so that you don't get your windshield smashed and your tires flattened or worse, um, if that's what you want to do, then that's a great approach. Yeah. Uh, and so, and really that is sometimes what people are, are into is more of that, confrontational approach well especially these days I, I see this happening so much in um i don't know if it seems like it's more than it used to be people are seeking confrontation just because it attracts attention mm-hmm. and it, it raises everybody's right. profile clicks. you get more clicks yeah, yeah. i mean I, if i post a, a bloody photo of a turtle or a dolphin it gets more response than if i if I post a photo and I say, see this animal, it's on its way to recovery because the quote unquote bad guys mm-hmm. are saving it. Yeah. Like that gets a, f- a few people who say thumbs up, good job. Right. But if, if I post something that says, you know, people suck, here's a dead turtle. <laughs> I get way more retweets on that. Yeah. Than, and I, yeah. Cause I don't know, just yeah. that's the way it works. People are, respond that way strange world yeah. let, let me uh in light of the fact that our time's limited i don't want to run yeah. on with and miss things um let me just run through some questions and i'm sure you get asked uh, all the time and you're sick to death of is it true that the proportion of water in our bodies is equal to the proportion of water on the planet yes and that is somewhat irrelevant i mean it's a cool Comparison, so it's just but, a trivial sort of yeah. So it's yeah. this, you know, the surface of, right. of the planet. So right. if somehow the surface percentage 
uh, equates to somehow the internal percentage of our bodies, right. um, but it doesn't. It's a nice it's, symmetry. It's, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. Some, what, yeah. what about salinity? I've, I've close, read. but then that's there. There's you know now you're kind of getting more into the realm of maybe kind of matters, but um, it's cl- it's not exact. It's close, and some some I've read that when life emerged from the ocean, this, it was we were closer in salinity. So salinity is is uh, not static uh, in in the environment, so it's mm. changing. Right, um, the salinity of different parts of the ocean varies. Um, brackish waters and coastal estuaries, uh, which is probably where we spent a lot of our time mm-hmm. in our, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago is different than, um, other parts of the ocean. So you got r- variability in salinity right. of water from very, very low salinity to higher salinity. Uh, but our salinity, our salinity doesn't vary as much. So, right. um, Again, it's a cool comparison. It's it's yeah. it's more. Um, it's really nice poetry. It's really actually useful poetry too. But I think humans are the only primates that have saltwater tears. Right? Is so, that true? Yes. And so we've got a, we've got a. Um, you know, the, you, there you can go down the the aquatic ape path, but you don't need to if that freaks you out for whatever reason uh, <laughs> there is enough enough sort for of example cool... if you're a marine biologist <laughs> yeah. with a reputation yeah, to be right. aware of there's enough cool stuff that like uh, yeah we're we can handle water yeah like the way our our nose is on our face and, right and the way our you know our, our our skin being somewhat hydrophobic allows us to to you know and enjoy you know the water time without being you know just absorbing it all and um, and just the way we can move in the water, if we're given a few lessons on, on how to do it, where right. we can achieve some pretty amazing things from whether it's swimming or, or surfing or paddling with basically our bodies in a, in a piece of wood. Yeah. Uh, and so it, um, you don't need to get, get far out to, to just appreciate this connection that we have. Um, so yeah, we're, we are uh, made of water, as is every other living thing on the planet. We're primarily made of water. And uh, that's good to know. It's good to be reminded of. And it, you can take it in a poetic direction. But you can take it in a, a deeply scientific and a chemical direction. Do you... You must uh, sort of come in contact with people who have you're talking about the poetry where the science verges into poetry there there's also science verging into mysticism mm-hmm. um i i interviewed a guy recently who's sort of a i don't know biohacker health guru kind of thinker very very smart guy and the responses to the podcast I did with him were 80% this guy's a genius and 20% this guy's totally full of shit, snake oil, you know. And I think the area that triggered people the most, and honestly, I, I had trouble with as well, was when he, he was talking about homeopathy mm-hmm. and how um, that the sort of the essence of water could be affected by... Um, coming into contact with something that then was removed, yeah. but that the water somehow contained an impression of that thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that, that for me, and I, that's not something that I, I study per se, but I do come in into contact with this conversation. Um, and I'm comfortable with saying, I don't know when mm. I don't know. Right. So that's sort of a, just, that's, that's not my back door out, but right. that is often the case when, cause water really is a big topic. So, but what I've learned is, and this isn't a dodge, but the, the power of placebo. Mm-hmm. And so placebo is not a dirty word. Yeah. Placebo is an awesome word. And what placebo means is that your brain makes the drug. Your brain makes the chemistry happen. Yeah. And that you don't need to buy it and ingest it. You make it. And the reason why every every pharmaceutical on the planet works is because we have receptors that allow them to work. Right. The reasons we have receptors are because we made them. We evolved them. So mm-hmm. that implies some some capacity uh, that's in, inside of us already. So that that I call it blue SIBO. So if you think that your morning swim makes you happier, healthier, more creative, stronger, sexier, um, better at everything you do, that will help you yeah. a lot. That's right. a, that's a, that's a powerful set of ideas. Um, and that's not to say that therefore you can swim through sludge, uh, or con- in contaminated water and it doesn't matter. That, that's not true. Uh, the water can still make you sick. There's, there is still the chemistry of the environment going on. Um, so that's part of everything that's going on in most of these conversations that if you, if you believe it's going to work, your, your brain is so powerful. Your body, uh, with your brain together can do some pretty amazing things. So in the realm of water that that's worth, worth considering, I, I call it the, the blue SIBO effect and, uh, not with any disrespect at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. It water, uh, my understanding of physics is very limited, but it seems that water is a pretty simple molecule. Mm-hmm. And yet within that simplicity is just incredible complexity and nuance and um yeah, I and importance. I think those yeah. the other the you know this the simple observation that water is the matrix for life on the only planet we know of so far that has such life and that NASA scientists in their search for other life in the universe are first searching for a signal of water as the indicator FTW follow the water. Right. So as we search for other, our life sharing our universe, um, we're actually on a, on a, a quest for water because it's working here. So it may be working elsewhere. Right. So that, you know, just that is, uh, and it's transparent in, in one incarnation and in another incarnation, every visible color in the spectrum right. comes through the water and, and it can hold, it dissolves and holds so much. I mean, one, you know, one small marble size sphere of water can theoretically contain every known element in the universe and hundreds of billions of organisms. So imagine you're holding, you know, a one inch diameter marble. 
that much seawater is so full of life mm. and so full of everything in the universe. Yeah. It's just incredible. And yet it looks like a, a you know, beautiful little, little clear blue sphere, uh, you know, with light passing through it, but it's just chock full of life. Uh, something to keep in mind next time you're swimming, you know, across a lake or taking a swim in the ocean and you swallow a mouthful of it, that you're, you're literally swallowing just like a lot, a lot of living organisms. A lot of them are bacteria <laughs> and viruses. Some of them are plankton. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just a little bit of, of every element in the universe. It's kind of mind blowing. And uh, the, the most interesting question to me is how did we get so far away? How did we break our, the value equation so badly around this substance that is fundamentally the, the most important sort of yeah. matrix uh, of our planet. How do we, how do we get so far away from the honor and the reverence that it rightfully deserves to the point now where we're so wasteful and abusive? We're, we're pumping intentionally pumping toxic chemicals into the aquifer and fracking. Mm -hmm. It, it's just yeah the aquifer that we know is the water that's that we need that we need to yeah to do things not just brush our teeth not just cook our meal but bathe our children yeah like bath time it's like know. we're we're connecting our sewer pipes to the you know the kitchen intake yeah. because somehow somebody made some money some it's unbelievable and so that's the really that the, yeah. if there's a goal of, of writing blue mind and being out talking about it um, it's that it's the, how do we, how do we fix the story? We, the story we've, the new story, that the, you know, we had, we had the old story that worked pretty well. It's a lot of full of reverence. Then the newer story that's totally broken. How do we create the new, new story that helps us fix this problem? Because the basic story is important and that these basic sort of archetypal, um, things that you just know uh are so important yeah uh, but, you know back to jaws like people are afraid of sharks and they don't know why they just are because of this imp incredible story called jaws yeah. <laughs> that was written and then you know became a, a movie then became you know part two and three and four uh that story got under our skin so how can we create a a powerful story for water that is based in science that because we've got plenty to say about water that's pretty mind-blowing that people don't know about that reminds us that from from conception through death uh, water makes our lives so much better and uh, maybe we could learn that in school but we don't none of these things we're talking about are at least in my 24 years of schooling, I've never learned any of this. It, mm. it was never brought up that you're having a shitty day. Just go to the water. It might be your bathtub. It might be the pool. It might be the lake, the river, the ocean. But if you're having a bad day, try the water. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is a this is a very special situation here. Jay agreed to continue the podcast after his meeting that he had to run away to, and so we are now sitting in an island in a malarial swamp <laughs> in, a, in a bamboo grove <laughs> in downtown Santa Cruz of all places. Yeah, there's like a little patch of jungle that uh, that we uh, we discovered, and we're sitting here. There's a gazebo, and it really it does look like. Vietnam or something. Yeah, back we're surrounded here. by water. Literally, we're on a, a tiny island surrounded by a swamp, and uh, yeah, and then then yeah. further out is we're surrounded by Santa Cruz, but you wouldn't know it by looking around here. So you, we were talking about while I was setting up, we were talking about waterborne illnesses, yeah, and you you told a story which I won't I won't ask you to repeat <laughs> that involved <laughs> diarrhea and Cindy Crawford. <laughs> Just, just imagine the story. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what it is. Uh, <laughs> call me. I'll tell you the whole story, but we, we won't do it here. You and, and you look kind of like Richard Gere, too. Yeah, right. I wonder I wonder if this all fits together somehow. It's all making sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever had any, like, really negative water-related experiences? Any, like, almost drowning or... Several, and personally, but I think the most profound one uh, has to do with my mom. And she grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, and acquired a lifelong fear of water because of two incidents as a kid. Um, first of all, they weren't allowed to swim at Bay Beach, which is uh, the famous spot along along the lake there because of contamination, which began um, before you know early just before she would be old enough to kind of enjoy the lake. But she had two dunking, drowning scares as a kid, and as a result had a lifelong fear of water that she still has. Um, and so indirectly, uh, I just have to say, my life was diminished by having a mom who didn't want to get in the water with us. And uh, my dad did, but my mom wouldn't. And she loved to be by the water. She loved to watch us in the water. She still loves second floor balcony view of any water in a margarita at sunset. But being in the water is not her thing. And uh, and I, when I th- as I was writing Blue Mine, I, th- I thought about that more deeply. And I thought, wow, what a loss to her and, and the loss to uh, all of us to not be able to be with her in the water. Hmm. Uh, because that's one of the best parts of my life right now is being in the water with my kids. And I, so I missed that, but went, traveled back to her high school reunion with her, um, to her 50th. And, uh, we went looking for the guy who dunked her. <laughs> and, so he uh, dunked her like horseplay in a pool or something? Yeah. And it was fun and games, junior high school. She came up, tried to get a breath, dunked again, tried to come up, dunked again until yeah. it became panic. But uh, it was a game right. for everybody else, not for her. Um, Jim, I won't say his last name because he, he, Jim, if you're listening, you fucked up my whole childhood. <laughs> so were you looking to kick his ass? No, I don't know. Some I wasn't ready. Eighty year old guy, <laughs> Jim, you motherfucker. <laughs> Come on, Jim, we're going to the bathroom. I had not really thought it all the way through, but um, <laughs> I did get back to the pool where it happened with my mom. Oh, really? We got in the water there, and subsequently. I took her with me on a, a Galapagos expedition and convinced her to get on my back while I was snorkeling 
um, and we found some sea turtles. And highlight one of the highlights of my life was having my mom on my back in the ocean, swimming with sea turtles in the Galapagos. Wow. And uh, it it took 50 years for that to happen, but um, we got out there, and so. You know, can, can she swim? I don't know. I I know. I really don't know. She doesn't like to get water anywhere near her face. So standing in the wow. water, you know, chest deep. Right. Um, we were just standing in shallow water, sandy bottom on our way into the ocean in the Galapagos. And that was rough. Just the, you know, small, small waves. And uh, it's very uncomfortable. And I said, well, here, here's a mask and a snorkel. No way. That was not going to happen. So I said, what about if you just relax and hold, put your arms around my neck and we swim like that? And then we'll go find some sea turtles, and they may pop up all around us, which they did. And I had a bit of a flashback, because when I was a kid, I would climb on my dad's back and wrap my arms around his neck, and we would do this thing called the turtle ride. So he was the turtle, Mm. and I was the kid, and we'd dive under and pop up, have a breath, dive back under. Maybe as you you got older, you dive a little deeper. And I do that with my kids. Mm. And so now I'm, I'm doing the exact same thing with my mom on my back. And she's, she's screaming in my ear, you know, kind of both freaking out and really stoked to be mm. doing that in the Galapagos with sea turtles. Um, and she just kept saying, don't dive, don't dive. And so Don't dive or don't die. Don't, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, was, yeah, so I, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, that relationship with water for a lot of people is it's complex and it is there's a fear component which offers the respect and i would say just underlines the joy that you feel when you get it right and knowing that Mm. when you dive down to the bottom of whatever it is that you're you're not supposed to be there for very long and it's a gift to be there at all Mm. and uh you know that that um the fear part of it is real, for sure. Yeah. You remind me of, um, I did that same thing with my father when I was a kid. I told you we had swimming pools, and he used to, I'd wrap my arms around his neck, and he'd go underwater. And, yeah, I got that thrill of, of like, my dad strong and, you know, carrying me and holding yeah. me and all that. And it wasn't until I was probably in my 30s and just... In conversation, he said something about how he'd always been afraid of the water. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? We used to swim in the pool all the time. He said, yeah, but I was always afraid. I said, really? Like when you had me on your back? He's like, I was terrified. But I didn't want you to be afraid, so I didn't let you see it. Push through it and teach you to not be afraid. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, that's sort of a metaphor for other things. Like his father was abusive and... Um, he grew up in a, a very unloving household, mm-hmm. and the, uh, my childhood was very loving and very yeah. unconditional love. And, yeah. and in so many ways, he and my mother sort of, I, I really admire them because they 
they resisted that very strong urge to pass on their pathologies, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. I think that's probably one of the most beautiful things a parent can do is consciously decide I'm not going to... I'm not going to let this keep cascading down the generations. Yeah. You know? my, my dad's father was, was, you know, maybe what typical of that generation, but distant. And, you know, my dad made a point every night to the last thing we heard was, I love you. Mm. Yeah. And I remember talking to him about that when I was a little older. And he said, yeah, my dad never said those words to me yeah. ever. So I'm saying it. I said it to you and, and your brother and our three foster sisters um, every night right. as a point. You made a point to, like you said, break that break that cycle. It's so cool because it doesn't come naturally. No. You know, no. like you don't know how to say I love you if you never right. heard it. You and have you to practice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Really. Well, and they, my parents, um, my brother and I were both adopted and then I have three foster sisters that are older than me. And, uh, so they adopted five kids. Yeah, we had a house, and then we had exchange students, and it was sort of when, wow. when they realized that they were not going to have their their biological children. They just basically said, "Open door policy at the Nichols house." That's and, great. And uh, and I reflect on that, and that that capacity to one day um, somebody hands you a child, and it's yours. And the day before, it, that child was a complete stranger, an unknown. And then one day you decide, I am going to take care of this child for the rest of its life as a parent. Right? That to me, that just I marvel at my own my own parents. Yeah. And, that, and all ad adoptive parents, um, and it gives me massive amount of of optimism and hope of what we can do. And if we, I mean, if you if you can decide one day that a child you never met will be your responsibility for the rest of your and and the child's life uh wow is there a bigger gift i don't think mm. so yeah um and so the yeah the, the the capacity of the human heart and mind and spirit to to love is is incredible um and so that's what, that's what kind of we're going back to the the conversation about you know the turtle hunters yeah. turn poachers or right. whoever it is right wow you know there there is a there is neuroplasticity and there's capacity for empathy and yeah. and compassion that we're so far away from really really actualizing and tapping into uh, but when we do it's beautiful and and world changing and healing and fixes the things that have been broken so whether it's an endangered species or you know a, a, a previous generation's poor relationships or right. you know um, broken relationships um, and this yeah. idea of of um, love being non-genetic is very interesting to me because in um evolutionary literature there's a lot of talk about uh, altruism mm -hmm. and because altruism is um, very confusing for people who have a strictly gene-based view of human behavior because why would you be why would you 
um, do something that costs you in some way for someone that you're not related to. It doesn't make sense, you know. And so there's this, uh, I think it's called inclusive fitness, mm-hmm. this idea that our generosity is based on the likelihood of how many, uh, how much of our DNA we share with anyone. So mm-hmm. I'll be like, you know twice as generous to my sibling as I would be to a cousin or, you know, and so it goes down depending how much DNA you share, which is just nonsense as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) you know. I was talking about this one time on an interview. uh, Actually, it was for the Playboy channel. I remember it was a former playmate who had a radio show and she was really smart. And uh, yeah, I I went into it thinking like this is going to be kind of superficial Mm -hmm. and I was blown away like it was one of the most she'd read the book she had the book there with notes and you know post-it notes sticking out of it and she really got into it anyway we were talking about this and I said something about like come on you talk to an adoptive parent they love their kid as much as any other parent and maybe more I mean you can't judge more but but certainly the risk that they took consciously Mm -hmm. um is is so impressive and anyway she said i have two adoptive kids and no one could ever tell me that it's possible to love a kid more like the first night that kid was in my house that's That's my kid i don't give a shit about genes right i don't care it looks like me or my husband or whatever that's That's not not an issue that's not what's going on yeah yeah it's i mean people you know even not to diminish anything, but even like animals, we mm-hmm. we form a love bond with someone not even from the same species. Yeah. You know? I have thousands of friends, colleagues, literally, who have devoted their adult lives to sea turtles. Right. Which right. aren't so, warm and fuzzy. <laughs> nor are they, I mean, they, as far as sort of being relatives, it's, you know, they're not <laughs> even mammals, distant. they're reptiles. Yeah. So, yeah. And they're unstoppable. In their and scientists, you know, their PhDs and publications and all kinds of journals on blood chemistry and migration and genetics and all aspects of sea turtles, but they are just unstoppable in their desire to make sure that this group of animals doesn't go extinct. Mm. So, what is that? Are they because right. they're being paid? No, right? Um, the opposite, actually, you know, overeducated Americans who could. Get a job in Silicon Valley if they were right. after money yeah. or selling it, you know, anything. Uh, but they've decided that this is what they're going to do, and they're unstoppable. Like you and it's working. And so there's a uh, the that gives me a lot of hope. Like what the the un, really the untapped potential of what you're, you're just talking about of the love love for an adopted child or an adopted species that you're you said look this this grove this forest is going to thrive and i'm i'm going to do everything i possibly can to make sure that happens so you know i, I get it asked all the time by students and, and and people are early in their careers for advice and i just say pick a pick a patch pick a pick a species mm. and tell yourself and vow to yourself that you are going to leave it better than it is right now. Healthier, whatever that means. If it's a patch of farmland or it's an endangered population of turtles or it's a creek. And just work for the rest of your life to make that piece of our planet better when you're done. There really, you, you will be so satisfied by that work and challenged 
from end to end by all of the things that are lined up against you yeah. doing that. And then at the end, you can go there. Like when you're, you know, a crusty old dude or dudette, you can do this. You can sit, sit in the grove and talk to your friends and say, wow, you know, that's a, a nice little legacy. Assuming and, you're successful. Yeah. Because right. sometimes yeah. those forces are unstoppable. Right. But, but how about you? We're never, never going to have the budget we think we need to do the things we think we need to do. Like that's the first wake-up call. Um, whatever it is, whatever the the movement is, mm. it's a social issue or environmental issue. Yeah. We're just we're just not going. We're going to be outfunded. So, what do you do? You do things that don't require money, which turns out are pretty fun, and uh, they require an understanding of human emotion and building of trust and love. Um, and that's what, every time, all the wins I've seen have not been based in deep pockets. All the lasting wins. Yeah. Right? Political campaigns is a different thing. But I'm really not talking, I guess it's a, the difference between a campaign and a movement. Right. Uh, the campaign mindset is very different than the movement mindset. Do you know who Josh Fox is? Yeah. Have yeah. you ever met him? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Okay. He's a he's a good friend yeah. of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. You. I was just when you were talking, I was thinking about um, this party I went to at his place. He has a place in Eastern Pennsylvania right. on the watershed that he was really concerned with when they started proposing fracking, fracking there, yeah. and that got him into that whole movement, and yeah. he started raising hell, and it led to a movie, which led to an yeah. Oscar nomination. Yeah. And great movie. Um, anyway, he has these parties, and uh, uh, three or four of them a year on his property, and I went to one... Uh, Labor Day or Memorial Day. I, was, I always get them mixed up in September, whenever yeah, that, that Labor. one is. Labor Day. <laughs> uh, and it was amazing. They're, they're like maybe, he says he invites about 500 people. No idea how many are going to show up. Like probably 75 people were there, 80. And some come in and go yeah. and some there for the whole three or four days. Um, and it things just happened dinner got made lunch got made dishes got washed garbage got taken out yeah, yeah. and at one point i said to him like dude how do you organize this he said i don't organize anything yeah. he said this is this is community yeah. people come they want to help they pitch in they see what needs to get done it gets done and he's this fulcrum of political activists like he's a big bernie sanders guy and like the guy who ran the national bernie sanders campaign was there and um art and theater and um film and you know there are all these music there are all these people from different worlds but they all have the same mindset mm -hmm. which is what you were saying it's it's not campaign based it's more movement based mm -hmm. and and josh is very adamant about the idea that movements happen because of community mm -hmm. And so if you want to change things, build a community mm -hmm. around this idea, but make sure everyone's having fun. Right. And I'll That's tell you, true. go to a party at Josh's <laughs> house. Yeah. There are people fucking in the bushes. There's, <laughs> right. you know, people singing by the fire. Fires, yeah. I mean, uh -huh. It's just like great, like the way a party really should <laughs> yeah, be, right. you know. But the word fun is often left out of uh, um, a lot of these conversations. And it, right. it's... Uh, um, it's important not to say that there is no fun at all, but the uh, you know back you know thinking about the, 
sea turtles in Mexico, we have fun. Like there's there's always, uh, you know, appropriately it's either you know black coffee or tequila and some beer, um, good tacos. When we go out on the water to catch the turtles, we we, we have fun doing it. Hmm. Um, fishermen bring their kids over, and we you know we share what we know uh, very openly and freely. Sometimes there's a documentary film crew, and so you know fishermen's like, look, I'm. I get to sh- I'm going to be on the National Geographic channel and so my kids get to watch that and mm. that's fun right it's not yeah. fame right. at all but it's just something a little different a little fun yeah and uh, I was never taught to do that in school like if you're if you want to build um, we're never taught to build movements in school either but um, if you want to solve problems um, make sure it's fun make sure you're kind uh, make sure you do what you say you're going to do don't overpromise. Um, but just do it and do it with respect, whatever it is. So you're not a fan of the Unabombers. Kind of, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't never, never met them. I don't agree with, uh, you know, all the tactics. Uh, but you I read think, the I think, yeah, I did. I mean, there's some, there's some brilliant stuff in there. Yeah. So you kind of get that mix of, uh, yeah. of, um, over the line, red mind, right? Too much red mind. Yeah, uh, is never never a good thing, and um, but you know I've, I've advised students over the years, and it's the simple questions like, "Have you tell me?" You know, people working on issues with fisheries, and I say, Do you, "Just tell me the name, first name, of one of the fishers you work with, and the name of their boat." And they look at me like, "What, what are you talking about?" Hmm. Not just you're so, you're you're in this to solve this problem, right? And, right. And you're signing up for the long haul. Uh, a graduate degree and then a career, right. your life basically. Name of a fisherman and and the name of the boat, name of the, their family members. I had one conversation with a student. That question caused her to cry because she realized she didn't know how the deficient she'd been, and realized nobody had ever asked her that question. Good for her throughout her education. I said, next time I see you at uh, a meeting, uh, I'd like. I'd like you to come up and tell me the answer to these questions. Yeah. And um, and I kind of forgot about it. And I was telling the story to uh, a journalist, environmental journalist, years later, like really very recently, and it had been a, a decade ago. And she said, um, I think that was me. Really? And she said that I remember that very clearly no kidding and i said well then me too <laughs> clearly <laughs> didn't Not, remember you yeah, but I remember, I remember. Like, you grew up and yeah, kind of you know yeah. having a different career all right and uh but that yeah that uh That's those simple funny. things right just yeah. like, what if you went over to the fishing boat and said you know hi my name's jay i love turtles and i know nothing about what you do on this boat and can i buy you a cup of coffee and learn a few things and my goal is not to put you out of business, but it's to solve a problem. Hmm. That would be revolutionary, yeah. frankly, uh, and it almost never happens. Do you know anything about Aikido? Yes, but it's kind of like an Aikido strategy, really. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. Aikido is, is not about dominating. Yeah. It's about diffusing yeah. with a kind of soft dominance that doesn't humiliate your yeah. your partner right. don't even want to say opponent or yeah. you know whatever yeah I, I i did um when i was in grad school the first term i did a 
course on um, addictions, mm. addiction studies, and I was anticipating 10 weeks of difficulty because I had spent a lot of time studying drugs and consciousness and ethnobotany, and that was kind of my thing before I went to grad school. I didn't go to grad school till I was well into my 30s. Mm. And I thought, okay, this is there's a required course, and this teacher's just going to spout a bunch of fucking nonsense about how drugs are bad and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to put up with it because, you know, I just, right. I don't. I was yeah. that kind of student. Like, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I know. I don't give a fuck what degrees you have. I know about this. Yeah. And first class, this guy made it very clear that he was not full of shit. He was great. He was, like, just totally wonderful. And anyway, at one point he said, um, he was talking about people coming to your office as a uh, psychologist, if you're specializing specializing in addiction studies, a lot of people who come to you are going to be forced to come to you mm -hmm. by the judge, by the wife, by the husband, by the boss. You go get therapy or right. else. Yeah. And he said, you know, so the people are coming in with all this resistance and anger. And if you get involved in that, you're done. You can't do anything. So you have to develop this capacity to remain centered and let all this aggression and anger just go by you and not let it knock you off your out of balance. And I raised my hand. I said, that, that's kind of like Aikido, right? And he said, yeah, good point. Uh, stay after. And I want to talk to you. So after the class, he said to me, look, I didn't want to say this in class, but I've learned more about psychotherapy from my study of Aikido oh than any Harvard or anywhere else I went to school. If you want to be a therapist, you really should get into Aikido. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I may have told this story before on the podcast. Apologies <laughs> if I have. Um, but he was, I was in San Francisco and he said, uh, why don't you go, my teacher's in San Francisco. And I was like, look, dude, I'm like living on student loans. And I was working at a nonprofit at the time trying to survive in San Francisco on $19,000 a year. And um, he was like, no, nah, just go. The first class is always free. So I went to the class and um, afterwards, this, his name was Richard Moon. He came up to me. He said, so what'd you think? I said, this is great. I really enjoyed this. And I'd studied martial arts. I'd studied Kung Fu when I was younger. And this was very different, but mm -hmm. the same. What I loved about Kung Fu was still here, the mm -hmm. sort of respect mm -hmm. and, I don't know, the camaraderie and the community that formed there. And um, he said, well, you should come. I said, look, honestly, I don't have any money. And, you know, this isn't a good time in my life for something like this. And he said, well, look, class costs 10 bucks a, a session. Uh, you know, I'm here, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Friday and these hours. Come as often as you want. Keep track of how many classes you take. And someday when you have money, send me a check. And if I'm gone, help somebody. That's done. Yeah. And it's like, that's Aikido. That's Aikido. Right that's there. it. Yeah. Right? It's not about yeah. you giving me. Yeah. It's not. It's a greater flow. Right. It's it's really. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, you you made me think of the um, in, you know, counseling and whether it's addiction or other other topics. Um, that finding that neutral place where you can have a conversation. A lot of times, it could be an island like this, surrounded by water. Instead of a, a little office box with, you know, books on the shelves and, mm. and degree yeah. frame degrees or desks and 
or walking on the beach side by side looking forward yeah you know with that sort of cone of of um blue silence around you privacy um or sitting by a river or whatever it is but these all these benches that we've put in or installed around the world overlooking water are really useful mm. for this for, yeah. the, for this purpose as uh as locations for for therapy right com- really good conversations because the the water meditates you a little bit and sets you up for a, a deeper dive and builds that little little bubble of privacy and does a whole bunch of stuff that helps uh, people connect to each other, connect to themselves, and, and, and share at a whole different level. And uh, it seems like that would be the first thing I would teach if I if I had had the opportunity mm. uh, to speak to people who were going in, into that that kind of career. Like, if you can, go outside and find some water um, and remind your client that they can go to the water too anytime they need mm. to utilize this free trick. It's like nobody's selling anything here. Right. The water's available. Um, a lot of these waterfronts are public spaces. And people and, are getting close to that now. And there's yeah. nature therapy right. is a, you know, would, nature I, bathing. I like taking the word nature out or the word environment out as much as possible because or even conservation because th- those those signal to people who don't feel like they're part of our club mm. that they're not part of the club mm. and if, so if you can so for example uh, there's a program called Heroes on the Water for works with uh, veterans and first responders who are dealing with post-traumatic stress and they do kayak fishing uh, if they call, and, and a lot of what happens when you're in a kayak fishing is essentially blue mind meditation. You're you're neither paddling nor fishing. You're you're sitting and looking at the water and being mindful. But if they called their program um, nature therapy or kayak meditation, mm. <clears throat> people yeah. wouldn't sign up. Right. <laughs> it would be right. that would be kind of like the red flag of don't don't do this. It's hippie bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And, but if it's kayak fishing. And you come home with dinner, right? Uh, then you get all those benefits along with it, right? And it doesn't matter if you don't have any legs. Well, and so many hunters and fisher fishermen say that. If you really ask them, yeah. it's like oh, yeah. I don't really care <laughs> yeah. about getting a fish. I just like hanging out at the river. Yeah, all day. I'm standing in the river with my friends, yeah. and uh, you know, watching the water go by, yeah. and it's really awesome. And, and yeah, uh, yeah, it's a so I don't want to blow it here and just kind of say, you know, really, you know, if you're kayak fishing or, or fly fishing on a river, you're meditating and doing doing therapy. But I guess I just said it. But it's uh, it's kind of what's going on. Um, yeah. But men like to have a purpose. Yeah. Right. We, you know, yeah. we like to have some reason yeah. we're doing this yeah, other than up, just the... And like a pole in their hand. Yeah. You know, or, or... <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Graphite, if you yeah. can get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> um, you grew up in New Jersey. Were you on the shore? We were in a suburb um, in a town called Westwood and then another town called Woodcliffe Lake, uh, which has about as much nature packed into a name of a town as you can get. Yeah. Uh, so Bergen County. Um, but we would always go off and, you know, muck around in creeks and obviously mm. the lake, the Woodcliffe, the lake of... There Woodcliffe really was lake. a lake. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You Reser- never know. Reservoir. Uh, yeah. But we'd break in, you know, climb the fence and break in and camp out there and fish. And then go to the shore, uh, 
go up and down the East Coast uh, my, my childhood. Um, then we moved to Chicago during high school. And um, remember when my dad came home from work and said, so I've got this job offer um, involves a move to to this place called Chicago and pulled out the map and I was like wow that's a lot of blue spots on the map hmm. like lakes rivers and then the big lake uh, Lake Michigan and two baseball teams I'm, I'm, my vote is yes look look at all that water and you know two baseball teams I'm in my brother one of which not, never wins but yeah, yeah. right exactly <laughs> but hey you know you yeah, know lot, lot, lots of games and yeah. uh, at the time it was yeah it was not that the the heyday of of the Cubs, nor really the the Sox, but um, so anyway, that was was about the water. And it literally, when we moved there, I was able to from the sec. My room was on the second floor uh, of a condo, and um, I could fish out my window. Literally. Really, I could I could reel in, and I did uh, fish from the lake. <laughs> Your downstairs the- neighbor must have been <laughs> yeah, amused yeah, by right. that. Just, my mom was not. Like, <laughs> You don't bring those fish in the house. But, what what uh, were you catching? Bass? Uh, pike, bass. Oh, really? With, yeah. Pike, a lot wow. of sunnies, you know. Yeah. It a, yeah. But it was, you know, that they went back. I had a bucket in my room. They went back into the lake. Oh, it was okay. Not, it was not it was catch and release yeah, through some, your bedroom. Some perch, you know. I mean, sometimes we'd cut them up and eat them. Uh, but, um, yeah, catch and release <laughs> through my bedroom window. <laughs> I tried that, too. <laughs> Never caught anything. Kyle's dad could probably. Pull, I don't know what's living in, in this this water here, but you know, a lot cool. of larvae. Yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, he needs some algae. salamander or what? Uh, what are baby frogs no, called? So I, I think tadpoles. Some, tad, some carp might do a good job. Clean it up a little. Yeah. Did you? Were you fascinated by water as a kid, or just the open space and getting away from town and all that? Both. I, you know, as a kid. So being adopted brings its whole set of questions and, and sometimes not answers. And so you have that going on. Do you know anything um, about your well, biological? I know, I know as much. I know a lot. Oh, yeah, do you? you know, yeah, my mother and biological father and siblings. You've met them? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. What? And, uh, how old were you when you met them? I met my mother. I started writing to my mother in high school and met her at my high school graduation. No and shit. then met my father uh, later on in college. Um, she, my biological mother's in Montana, Butte, Montana. My uh, late biological father was in Boston, and uh, discovered that I have um, I'm, I have six biological siblings, so I've met all of them and have you know, friendships with them. Um, still visit my you know biological mother regularly. We're in touch, you know, kind of constantly. Um, Is it a painful part of your life? No, um, not painful. I would say, you know, the, the questions had answers. And over time, we, uh, you know, shared some wine and got into it. And um, complexities of, like, everybody's family, right? Nothing special. Uh, and uh, They weren't married. You're... They weren't married, no. So it was an out-of-wedlock yeah. situation. Yeah. 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 So, um got as much detail as I could get and uh, and then there you know had a moment where my the house where we were earlier today my biological mother and father met there and my adoptive mother and father were there and uh we all got together wow yeah 
That was it was and it was super I might lose it right now just thinking about it, but super cool to see That's great. The the love, the respect for each other. Both of my mothers are named Sheila, which is sort of mm. unusual. Yeah. And they're they're pals now. Um and then the spark, you know, that between my biological mother and father that was still like he grabbed her ass one time. It's like <laughs> He always had a great ass, and uh, it's just like, did I just did that just happen? And you they, know, they hadn't <laughs> seen each other for a long time. Yeah, and uh, wow, not that it's all about that, but they had you know a high level of respect for each other, right? And and, and uh, admiration for each other, but also the spark that clearly you know. So they were in love with each other when you yeah, were conceived. In the I guess sixties, and things were a little. You know, they're free and happening, and and she was not uh, not going to get an abortion, and uh, New York City, and so had a full, healthy pregnancy, and then went west. And you were born in sixty nine, seventy, uh, nineteen sixty seven, sixty seven. Oh, yeah, okay, in summer. So yeah, um, you know, rewind nine months from July nineteen sixty seven, and that was you know back in 66 right uh so you know i got got that story which filled in the little blank spot that did i did he know that she was didn't, pregnant didn't know for a long time oh. and then uh, when i contacted her uh, which is a story in itself but had some help in pre-internet days right and, uh, found her and realized this is this is my mother in fact she reached out to him and, and sort of said, hey, uh, oh, wow. here's, here's some news. We have a kid in high school. Yeah. Let's let's have a let's talk about it. And so they had an exchange of information and photos and and she and I had exchanged information and photos that led up to a couple of years later. We met. And then a few years after that, I went out and met him and she gave me that information and. So it went from there. Um, so uh, complicated. <laughs> yeah, just a little, a little, a good time, yeah. uh, some some attraction that leads to uh, procreation that then, yeah, you know, le- leads to another human being. Uh, but I, I'm I'm thinking of it from their perspective. I'm thinking yeah. if I'm him, right? Yeah. You get this like, oh, remember me? Well, by the way, this happened. I didn't want to tell you at the time, but now the kid's 15. Or how were you 15, 16? Yeah, I, when I contacted her, 15. Yeah. yeah. And then they come in to your beautiful house there, and they see this life you've built. I mean, they must have felt yeah. proud in some very complicated, yeah. fractured way. Proud and uh, uh, some some sense of loss. Yeah, mi- like missed, the life that could missed, have been somehow. Out this yeah, and, uh, yeah, and that you know that it was it was a good deal for my adoptive parents. Like we it went went well. You know, we had a good yeah. a good time together. Yeah, for, for those years and and uh, that uh, yeah, just. What the what ifs are are endless, really? How did I guess since all their children were adopted, they were very open about it? Like, yeah, I knew I was adopted before I knew what it meant, and then sort of slowly pieced that together. You know, and it probably is one of the reasons why I became interested in genetics and science, and Hmm. and, uh, because I had all these questions about life, about biology, about 
origins, about genes, about, hey, wait a second, so you're, you're my mom and dad, but there's another man and woman somewhere who are my biological mom, mom and dad. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. So when you're eight, you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Is there a book that can help me answer that question? And so you start in, start into genetics a little earlier. Uh, if you have those questions, yeah. Some people dial that back and don't ask. I, I was a little more on the curious side. How old were you when you moved to Chicago? Uh, after my freshman year in high school, right? I moved there. So. I moved the same year. Yeah. Was that difficult for you? Um, I, you know, I, I like I like water and animals generally as much or more than people. So mm. it was uh, a little bit. I mean, it was, a, it was, but I, I got to a new place and I, there was a lake and yeah. I could catch fish out the window and I had a, I got, I could take the canoe out at night and be, you know, I go to, you know, I go to school after a weekend, played on the football team, um, and the math team and, uh, the guys that I knew would say, you know, where were you? There was a great party. And, uh, I wouldn't tell them, but the answer was I was in the middle of a lake in a canoe with my boom box playing Tchaikovsky eating pop tarts. Where were you? You know, like that yeah. was that was my answer. Alone, Tchaikovsky you know? and Pop. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. So happy, pretty happy, kind of just yeah, in a canoe with a fishing pole or jumping in and out of some water and and um, but uh, the and at the time back then I was pr- also I stuttered pretty badly to oh. the point where I didn't really like to speak out loud and yeah. and uh, this would be impossible. Uh, any kind of public speaking was really uncomfortable for everybody. Really? Uh, including the listener. And that was and from childhood or it kind of came on? Yeah, kind of just kind of was always, uh, I'd say, a disability or a, uh, certainly not a skill. Um, and I realized later on, kind of in grad school, that to be as useful as I wanted to be, I needed to figure this out so that speaking didn't make people really uncomfortable to the point where they didn't want to listen to anything. And by that, I mean, if we were, if we were speaking, you would just, um, there's something I think neurological that happens, not just in the stutterer, but in the listener Mm. that it creates a discomfort that is hard to empathize with. And it's yeah, because it's annoying, really annoying. It's it's beyond annoying. It breaks flow. Yeah. Like I get uh, Casilda, my wife, speaks seven languages. Yeah. And when she's speaking sometimes, she'll she'll like hold, she'll say um, and she'll like go halfway through a sentence and then she'll hold my attention while she's trying to think of the word. Yeah. And I get really annoyed, yeah. but I'm also like, she speaks seven right. languages. And she's going dude. through trying to find the, the <laughs> exactly. language that we're on right now. Well, yeah, if yeah. I'm speaking Portuguese, then let her yeah. be patient. Right. Yeah. But you know, I so it's a constant lesson for yeah. me not to to react to that. But imagine that pause being filled with noisy nonsense, nonsensical partial syllables yeah. that were almost words, but were completely unintelligible yeah that's annoying yeah like that's annoying at another level yeah that then as the speaker you you read that right so it cascades and then you get more uncomfortable right and it's a very negative feedback loop that happens until you just stop talking so how did you deal with it well at first 
I dealt with it by deciding I needed to deal with it, as you do with anything, that I wanted to deal with it. And I started, uh, so I was well into my turtle love fest at that point in so grad school. So you were school. in grad school, you were studying the turtles. Yep. Okay. And, I, and this I, is in Arizona. The University of Arizona, Tucson. Right. So I would go, I volunteered to give talks about turtles to, to kindergartners, basically. So I'd mm. take my slide carousel and uh, with permission, obviously, above the school and the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> You're not in the playground. Hey, kids, I got a van. I got this, my, my, doing a I got slideshow. A, I got a giant turtle. <laughs> I would just break into the school with my slideshow. Um, invited in the front yeah. door, got my badge and um, side carousel, and I would teach kids about sea turtles. And I hadn't, generally hadn't heard anything about sea turtles ever. Uh, maybe a little Discovery Channel, but that was it. So to meet a guy that studies turtles and has his own collection of slides, mm. the photos that he took, and some stories was cool, and it didn't matter if I stuttered. So I stuttered my way through my slide carousel and just told some turtle facts and stories and began to develop um, what I call the pause, the ability to detect that the stutter was coming and then before I made a sound, to wait it out. Hmm. And as annoying as that can be to listen to somebody who pauses a lot while they're speaking, it's a lot cleaner than gibberish. Uh, <laughs> and so you know, I, I developed that. And then... It's not annoying at all. No, and I got to tell you this. This, this is, this is going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but this is absolutely true. Kyle and I were talking yesterday because uh, I was complimenting him on the podcast you guys did together, right? And Kyle said to me, you know, when I'm with Jay, I'm always reminded to slow down and speak with thought and care because that's the way Jay talks. And I, and when I'm with him, I, I, I'm conscious of how I'm in a frenzy. I'm going too fast. I'm not thinking things through and being with him. Like, I don't know if he knows this about your past, but yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about it. Yeah. Uh, what he said to me was like, he gets extra value from being with you because mm -hmm of the rhythms yeah. and the care with which you speak. Right. So it's not annoying at all. Yeah. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. But maybe I, that's good to know. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's probably also annoying to some people to listen to a guy speak slowly and then pause sometimes for a little, you know, se several seconds in a row, which is kind of a, um, in radio world, it's dead air, right? And so it's like the, the third rail generally speaking but that's it, my it used to be used to be yeah. but i think now yeah. i think i think silence and pausing and and like being uh i don't know like ostensibly thoughtful mm -hmm. i i think there's there that we're in this period now where there's a reaction against the way things have become mm -hmm. so podcasts are popular right. because they're, they're not long. produced yeah. and they're yeah and they're long and they're, time and they're not and yeah it's just it's the opposite of this prepackaged bullshit that everybody's got and i think that's happened as well yeah. too i yeah. hear people in podcasts i mean you can set your your podcast app to jump through silence all right 
So it, yeah. it'll make a podcast shorter because yeah. it cuts out the pauses. <laughs> so the people who are listening to this have, have know that and they've already done that. So all the pauses are, are getting, uh, my, my, my long pauses are getting just, they're out. So they don't they're even know out. what we're talking about. But yeah, yeah. but that's it. That's, that was my workaround. And it was not, I had been to speech therapy and, uh, and it didn't, it fixed some things that I had going on with regard to speech but not that not the stuttering and um and so just practice like Mm. literally like a hundred slide talks about turtles with little kids later a teacher said you're you're a good speaker you should speak to the dive club and i was like the adults yeah i I have a friend that's in the dive club they would love to hear your talk and i thought wow that was a first nobody's ever said to me you're a good speaker and then anything Mm. after that and I thought, okay, well, this something's starting to work, and uh, the pause is just you know, and and so now people say oh, I like your speaking style because you pause. They like, thank you very much. I don't go into this whole, whole yeah. backstory. Yeah. It's not a, it's not something I learned at Toastmasters. It's right. something I uh, acquired as a, a coping mechanism, I guess you could say. Um, but I don't share that much, but I have shared it with groups of kids when I speak mm. in, in a middle school or high school and I'll sometimes start out by saying when I was your age I never could have imagined being asked to do what I'm about to do mm. and they're like what is he about to do like speak yeah you know? And, you know. well even for people who don't have any any sort of difficulty speaking public speaking is terror That's number terror. Yeah, one absolutely yeah yeah do, so. do you know Django Reinhardt Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know wh- how he developed his unique style? Mm-mm. I don't. He was a pretty good guitarist, yeah. uh, and he was a gypsy, you yeah. know. And he was sleeping in his caravan one night, and it caught on fire. And he escaped with his life, but he lost a finger on his left hand. And so he couldn't form oh. chords the way everyone else yeah. does. So he learn to form chords with three fingers which of course revolutionized the way he played guitar and he became Django Reinhardt instead of just a decent guitarist you know yeah Yeah. then that's I get you know we were talking about how you you get wisdom passed on by you know your your mentors and your elders and parents and that you don't necessarily hear it the first time um and that idea that you know adversities and challenges sort of sharpen you, or it may actually be the the basis of what you do that's different and useful. Um, that it's almost cliche, right? That that I, that idea, yeah, and so incredibly true in, in all of us in in some ways. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, um, and you don't wish that kind of pain on anyone. Of yeah. you know going working through any kind of abuse or any any painful injury uh yet there are all these stories of that's what makes us uh, better in a way unique uh, unique and gets you out of of the norm uh and challenges the status quo in different ways Mm. were you uh, i mean the stutter must have had an effect on your social life and dating and all that yeah i remember um always being asked by people so you know a little older in the dating realm 
why are you so shy? People would come up to you, whether it's at a bar or at, or at a party or just, why are you so shy? And, it, and I would say to myself, I'm not shy, I'm just paying attention. But I couldn't get that out. I would think, I would think the, those words, exactly those words, I'm not shy, I'm just paying attention. But I couldn't get, I couldn't say it. And uh, um, that was just kind of, I don't know if it was painful or uncomfortable, but it was, it was uh, an answer. Uh, sometimes I'd try to say some version of that and I couldn't quite get it out mm. or I'd sound like a dick. Mm. Um, really, it's like, if, you know, somebody is sort of maybe trying to start a conversation and that's your answer. It might be just <laughs> considered, you know, what a jerk or so aloof or right. something. But right. uh, um, so I, you know, generally would go, go for the water. You know, I'd go instead of to the social mm. um, scenes. I don't have really, I don't have really much of a social life to speak of, um, even now. Um, and I, my Dana, my partner Dana, can vouch for that. Uh, and I don't like crowds. I don't really like loud noise. Um, I like dinner with a small group of people, like mm. we're doing tonight. That's good. Twenty nine. Like, yeah. That's it. That's border borderline. How small your groups are. Yeah. 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 I but, mean, I you know I attend events and conferences and speak yeah. to auditoriums of students and adults, and then look. I look for the exit yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, you ever do uh, float tanks? Yeah, quite a bit. Quite into it. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Yeah. I, I actually gave the key- keynote last year at the float conference. Yeah, I did Portland. the year before. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, shit, really? That's funny. Uh, yeah, I did it together with uh, Duncan Trussell, who's a stand-up comic buddy of mine. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Have you ever met Joe Rogan? Have not met him, no, but I've been a fan, and, and yeah. I would know his connection there, too. Yeah. Uh, he's... Um, that's he... been... A, so that float, the float movement, if you will, I mean, I've sort of... You know, where you call something a movement these days, because everything seems to be a movement... If you have a hashtag, it's a movement. Yeah. Um, but there is, you know, something cool going on in, in that world. And pretty good friends with Just, Justin Feinstein, the neuroscientist. Mm. At uh, He's based in Tulsa, Oklahoma now. Mm. But he's studying our brain on, on floating. Uh-huh. And uh, I like it. I like, I like that activity a lot. And I recommend it to people. And most of them get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh well, because I'm friends with Joe and I've been on his podcast a lot, I'm sort of, um, if, if Joe is Jesus, I think I'm one of the apostles. <laughs> and so I, I get invited to free floats a lot, yeah. you know? And, uh, so when I was, I was living in Portland and the guys who own, um, float on float on yeah, yeah. ashcon ashcon yeah. right yeah, yeah. so they heard i was in portland they're like yeah. dude come in yeah. anytime and then That's they awesome. gave me like you know 50 free floats or something or yeah. discount i don't remember but uh so i had a chance to really get into it um i couldn't afford you know whatever oh, right. 60 bucks a float no, or whatever no. it is normal well, they sell blue mind at a lot of a lot of the float oh centers, right so right that's, uh, that's often my 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 free float ticket oh, there it's you like, go yeah. yeah oh well uh yeah yeah Ke- do you, have you ever heard of Kevin Johnson he, mm-hmm. in uh, Austin? Yep. Yeah. I'm headed, 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 headed to Austin tomorrow. Oh. Morning. 
I can hook you up with yeah. free floats. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's a good friend. He owns yeah. um, Zero Gravity yeah, Institute. Right. He's an interesting cat. I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. He's, uh, you know, like you're, you're talking about this, this, uh, like how your childhood and and social. Uh, I don't know, difficulty or whatever, mm -hmm. has sort of fed your love of the water, I think, mm -hmm. because it's an escape and it's a place where you're at peace. Right. And so there, these things fit together in a beautiful way. Kevin, uh, super into floating, obviously, he designs float tanks mm -hmm. and sells them and has his own center. And he's also really into caving, mm -hmm. like big mm -hmm. spelunking way down with tanks and, you know, absolute silence. You know, it's there's sort of again there's a synergy between yeah, those those yeah. interests. That my 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 we're kind of going all over the place. This is awesome. That my favorite people ask because I'm a marine biologist. What's your favorite dive, scuba diving? And it always my, still is uh, cave diving. Oh fresh, really? Fresh water uh -huh. in Mexico. Yeah. In the cenotes. Yeah. Just I. That's just I can't. And then, then number two, I can't think of. I mean, I can't think. I love. I've had a lot of great dives, huh. really yeah. epic dives all over the world. But that's like up here. And then number two, you know, I don't diving with my daughter anywhere is mm. number two. Um, but ca yeah, cave diving, super cool. So you're into that as well. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's not my. It's not. I'm like I'm an expert or anything, but yeah. I really enjoyed it. And yeah. and I think it's kind of you know I tell people in, with the float thing. Do it, then do it again, then do it. Do it three times, yeah. and then you can do, never do it again. Because after you've done it three times, it will always be available to you as a go-to memory that you can conjure up and go there. So I can go to that cave dive. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Is like if I if I tell you just a little bit about it, I'm there. Like I can feel it, mm. and that's a that's a good tool for your toolbox mm. is to have the feeling of a good float. And, and I always say three times because the first time you're like, this is weird. I'm bored. What, what am I I'm doing? Bored. Bored. Yeah. yeah. Like what's, and what, what is this thing? And who is that person in the lobby? And, yeah. and uh, are they going to bring me snacks or, you know, <laughs> you're just like, what's going on here? Yeah. The second time you're like, I, I'm, this, I'm familiar. The third time you can drop in right. and get to it. And, and if it's a good experience, then you've you've got that, and it, and if you never do it again, fine. But that then is something you can carry with you, and mm. if somebody just says the word float, you can go there. Yeah. And and it, you know maybe the float industry doesn't like me to say this, but but it, it really is like a it's it's like now you've got your portable float tank memory that you can conjure up and have a piece of that wherever you are yeah and um yeah and you can freshen useful. it up occasionally yeah and, and you should and, yeah. it, and there's nothing the virtual experience of floating the virtual experience of the ocean is just nowhere near actually being in water yeah it's just a you know a cartoon of it yeah um and so we're you know it's not just yeah about about not getting in the water but uh, it's good. It's good to have. It's good to go for a night swim when it's raining, mm. with no clothes on. Oh yeah. And then, because there you go. That that sound you just made yeah. implies yeah. <laughs> yeah. implies you just went there yeah. just now, and yeah. we're we're fully clothed on on, yeah. on Gilligan's Island here, and um, that's 
those memories. You gotta, that's what that's what we're doing. We're we're, yeah. we're making the memories that then become our nostalgia. That'll you know that when you're when you're less mobile and slowing down, you can still pull those up. And uh, and if that is all based in apps, dumb little apps that won't even exist when our kids are our age. Um, they're shocked when I say Instagram won't even exist when you're my age. You're like, what do you mean? Right. They think it's a, they think it's permanent. <laughs> permanent. It's always yeah. been right. Yeah. No. For them. Yeah. Yeah. And like make make some some kick-ass, fully Im- immersive yeah. memories because those are the things that are gonna you're gonna make music from. Uh, Isn't it strange? I was thinking that today, and and this is going to be the old fogey part of the podcast. But I mean, I remember when cell phones first came. When I saw this guy, I remember the guy. He's this douchebag dude. <laughs> Nothing against douchebags, although it's unhealthy, ladies. That wasn't misogynistic. That's against douching. Um, uh, this dude I knew who had the first cell phone, like in the holster. You know, and he, oh, yeah. you could tell he, he thought he was John fucking Wayne or something. And and I remember thinking, this is not going to be good. No. I don't like the way this is going. And now it's like life without them seems inconceivable yeah. to, to people. It's, and I was already adult. I was in my 30s, I think, you know, or 40s, maybe. I was yeah. thinking about my a similar moment. I was thinking on my way here today. I was thinking uh, like an, an hour ago. I was thinking about this. It's funny. I remember walking down the street past National Geographic, downtown in Washington, D.C., and the guy next to me must have had, a, like, the early, early headset thing. So mm. he was hands-free. There was no sign of a phone. And he was talking to himself. And I thought, okay, people, you know, talk to themselves a lot and whatever. But he kept, like, checking himself out in the reflective glass of the National Geographic building. So it was this weird experience of looking at this guy who just kept... Was really into checking himself out in the reflection and talking to himself. And it's like, what is what is going on? It's just a, so, such a clear memory of this guy. I think he was also in the douchebag club. So it was just kind of <laughs> it just seemed that that was my that's yeah. my impression. Yeah. And uh, and I, then I then I figured it out that he was so into this new thing that he had just clearly gotten because I'd never heard of it or seen it anywhere. So it's like the hands free earphone thing that he was like so into like checking out how do how does he look wearing it because yeah. maybe it could be a little geeky <laughs> and uh, and having this this chatty conversation while walking walking by National Geographic and then I went in to Nat Geo and but I, I when I went in I saw the, the thing in his ear and I was like oh wow that's what's going what well, this can't this is where this, we're going this, yeah this yeah. may not be all good here yeah um that we just walk around and sort of talk um, yeah, I often talk about how, you know, I traveled a lot when I was in my 20s and into my 30s. And, you know, I was in Kashmir and it took a month for a, a letter that I wrote to reach my girlfriend back in San Francisco. <laughs> and it would be another month for her letter to get to me wherever I was going to be in a month, you know, assuming she wrote it and sent it within 48 hours. That world's gone. Yeah. You, you can't travel oh, yeah. that far yeah. anymore. The distance is gone. There's no waiting for a letter, really. Yeah. In, in, uh, I mean, there's a document you have to wait for, but they've texted you saying, 
it's here it is here's a photo of it it's well, coming yeah and also you just can't get that far away from yeah. anything yeah. anymore you know well, i was waiting on a, a letter my grad school acceptance letters and i was working on a turtle project in costa rica and uh the first one they got to me uh, in costa rica was the one from university of arizona and there, there were a few others that i that were late and so when i got this i said I'm in. So I calculated the day that I needed to be on campus from the day that I got the letter. And I was like, wow, I got to get on a boat. Now, like now. I got to pack. Right. I literally got on a boat, got a bus, got another bus, got a plane, drove from Chicago to Tucson and showed up at 7 a.m. for a TA training. Literally, it was just a, I, I burned it from Tortuguero, Costa Rica to Tucson, Arizona with my letter that I had got in the, in the mail. And uh, that, you know, just the, the way that just mail, the slowness of mail mm. dictated a major decision in my life of yeah. where to go get my doctorate. And in marine biology in the middle of a desert. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. an interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because the letter got there first. <laughs> <laughs> the University of Hawaii was the other one. And there was, I think, Notre Dame. And, uh, wow. And... So I ended up at U of A in Tucson in the desert right. for, to study. There are, there, you know, just to University of Arizona's credit, there's a, quite a few uh, marine biologists who have come through and uh, a few of the best uh, sea turtle biologists in the world. So Jeff hmm. Semenoff, who currently runs National Marine Fisheries Service Turtle Program on the West Coast, uh, and a few emeritus professors that are some of the pioneers. Um, you wouldn't expect that from... You know, the Sonoran Desert, but uh, there's a, a little bit of a tradition. Tucson's um, actually a pretty cool town. Yeah, I, and I would say has gotten cooler since really? I lived there. Uh, yeah. The light rail that runs from the campus to downtown. Um, there's cool things going on downtown Tucson, the old Congress Hotel. Yeah. For those who know Tucson. I had never scene. been there until like a month ago. Cassie and I were coming back from New Orleans. We stopped to visit Andrew Weil that yeah. we talked about earlier and uh, spent a couple of nights there. And uh, do you know Kaj Larson by any chance? Mm -mm. Uh, he's, he grew up here in Santa Cruz. He's a Navy SEAL journalist, interesting guy. He's a friend of Kyle's. His sister's there. Right. And she's... Um, a toxicologist, special emergency care physician, but she specializes in toxic plants and animals. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, we spent a couple of days in Tucson. I'm like, wow! I thought Tucson was like Phoenix. I thought it was just yeah. like old people golfing, and yeah. but it's funky, kind of cool hip yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. It is. and it's surrounded by several mountain ranges. I, when I lived there, uh, I lived in the in, in the west side um, in what is now the Saguaro National Park. Mm. Um, I, I lived in a teepee. Oh, really? <laughs> Speaking of funky, hip town, uh, at a teepee on the edge of what is now the National Park uh, and woke up and came out to the, you know, basically this wide open desert and rode my bike or cruised in the, in the town, went for a swim at the rec center, had a locker, got into my office, and nobody knew I slept in the dirt right. in the tent, you know? Nice. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. And then, you you know, you get up to the mountains or you get down to the ocean by just shooting down to Mexico across the border. And three hours, you're you're at the ocean. You're, you know, you're in Mexico. And the Sea of Cortez. Sea of Cortez. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we take our 
my students, marine biology students, undergrads, we take them down there for field trips. And so you, theoretically, you could go diving every weekend and mm. live in Tucson and never get on a plane. <laughs> that's good. I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. All right. I know we got to get to this party, yeah. uh, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit or, or hear your thoughts because we've talked about sort of water through the life cycle mm-hmm. in, in some ways. And I know you're doing some work with uh, hospice. That's right. I, you know, I started thinking about the role of water throughout our lives. And so beginning with birth, and there's a thing called water birth that right. you can do. And you can labor in water. And, you know, we talked earlier about so the, the romantic aspects of water and so I'm, I don't know how many children have been conceived uh, on a waterbed with, within view of water. Um, in a bathroom, in a bathroom stall. stall. <laughs> yeah, right. So, some, some, so, and the whole concept of conception is a watery affair. It's pretty splashy. It's pretty splashy, yeah. right? Yeah. It's all happening. If, yeah. Without the wetness, there is no yeah. sex or it's all conception. fluid. No yeah. fluid. Nine months, you're in the dark. You're in your own little float tank called mom. Yeah. And then you're born, right? But that birth and the labor could also happen in a warm water calm calm environment so that's that's happening you can you can choose a water birth and and get it in a lot of places around the world so i started thinking well what about the other major life event and story of our lives which is death could we facilitate a water death and the more i thought about it the more i liked the idea for myself and the more people i talked to about it Many said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd choose that if the scenario was was the correct one that would allow that. So rather than dying in a bed, um, you could die in in a, a I won't say float tank. I just did, uh, but a f- something like something that. like that because not so popular to yeah. equate." Any any injury or death with, with floating, but did you hear a guy just did die in a float tank? I did not, but that's... he was a biohacker dude who was like injecting himself with oh, herpes no. viruses and you know doing all sorts of experiments, and they found him in a float tank. Something. Yeah, I don't think the autopsy's been completed yet, so they don't know what happened. Mm. But some... well, if you spend enough time in a float tank, or enough people spend enough time in any kind of water, you're, you're going to have a, you know, a few that. It, people that expire right. you know, in, in the water, whether it's swimming laps and have a heart attack or yeah. surfing or paddling. Yeah. Um, You're not going to drown in a float tank, no, people. That's, They're no, like nine inches all. deep. Yeah. Right. So if, you, so if you could create a, a technology that you could bring into a, a hospice situation or a home, you know, a home or a center or a hospital that, like birth, could facilitate um, the last hours of one's life and you could even share it with your loved one. You could be in the water together. Um, so that was the beginning of my, my thinking and, and uh, started getting into conversations with people who work in end-of-life care and hospice and palliative care and they were m- more curious than I thought they might be. And it turns out that that realm of... Uh, healthcare, medicine, you can call it healthcare, um, death care, is very open-minded. Hmm. Um, that may be the most open-minded hmm. in, in sort of the traditional healthcare system because they, 
might say, if it works for my client, it works for me because they're down to hours, days, maybe weeks. So if, if you know, mm. blueberry pancakes are therapy, then blueberry pancakes are therapy. Right. And that's what we're going to eat for the last few days. Um, so music, um, you know, any, any, any sort of you know, modality that works in that end-of-life care period. Psilocybin is, is Psilocybin. being used right. quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. so... Open, more open-minded than, say, pediatrics. Sure. You know, just for obvious reasons. Yeah. Don't have to so, worry about long-term effects right. or addiction or right. anything. Exactly. Yeah. So when you have the, the conversation about water and death, um, which I have at several hospice conferences that I've been invited to speak at, there's, there's open-mindedness. There's not necessarily ready, ready, ready acceptance, but... Um, and the feedback has been... You know, pretty positive that, you know, all of the things that I thought might be barriers are not issues, uh, whether it's open wounds or, um, you know, the peas, the, you know, poo, pee, that kind of stuff, puke. It's sort of what you deal with mm. in birth. You also deal with in death. So that that's being dealt with already um, in the floating in water, relaxing in water scenario. Um, Is the so, idea to have have it sort of replicate a flow tank in the salinity and the buoyancy? Yeah, I could try different things. Although I mean, if there are wounds, that salt's going to yeah. be a problem. Right, and yeah. so you, you might you might put Vaseline on, oh, on any open wounds. And certainly there'll be situations where it would not be prescribed. To so the idea is for, to promote bodily comfort uh, or, or just the absence of yeah. bodily just sensation at all. Remove gravity, all the things right. you enjoy about floating. Why not enjoy those in your last few hours right. um, of life? And you know, it's funny because, uh, like psilocybin, I think that one of the things I like about floating is the ego death. Yeah. Is that, like, as you said, the first couple times I, I was preoccupied and thinking and all that. But at some point in one of the later floats, I woke up, but also understood that I hadn't been asleep. So I was like coming back to consciousness from some some state of consciousness that wasn't sleep, but was not awareness yeah. either. It was just sort of I don't know, just floating literally, like, you know, and figuratively. And what a way to die. Yeah. What a yeah. painless way to die yeah. to sort of forget that you're alive. Yeah. Yeah, and to forget about your body, which is I mean, that's that's one of the things the research is showing that's so interesting is that a lot of body image stuff that young women d are, deal with and uh, anxiety related disorders and eating disorders. The research is showing how uh, float tank therapies can be really really helpful. Really, and in, uh, in that and that's a the morbidity rate. Uh, of that disease is very high. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very hard to treat. Very hard to treat. Yeah. So anything that works, a, even a little bit, is is of interest. And um, and uh, you know everybody's connected in some way to that disease, and directly or indirectly. Um, and so any anxiety related disorders and and floating. So the, death is such an anxious time for mm. for everybody involved. And so both the individual who's, who's dying, but also 
family member. So if it puts them a bit at ease, which puts, it, puts the family at ease, even the caregivers at ease. Mm. Uh, and so that, that was the beginning of it. Then it went from there to um, caregivers, hospice uh, professionals saying, what's this floating thing? My, my job is pretty stressful. Yeah. I think I need to float. And I was like, heck yeah. And let your, the families of your patients know that maybe they might want to try it. Mm. And what about just asking the question, what's your water? And then listening. And then would you like to go there one more time if we can facilitate that? And if the answer is yes, and it's feasible, go to the beach. Mm. And so if you die getting in the ocean one more time, okay. I mean, yeah. for, for, I'm imagining, really imagining this for myself mm. as I say it. If that's what kills me, like one last wave <laughs> or one last lap or one, one last, last little cast into the, the river, goodbye. then... It, you know, yeah. if they were, if we were down to days or hours, and every everybody that is around wants to carry me into the water and be there, let's do that. Yeah. So starts with the question, and certainly not for everyone, but it's uh, like the use of water in birth, the use of water throughout our lives in a therapeutic way. Um. It's so underutilized and so potentially useful that why not take it to to the the conversation about death, which is an yeah, uh, not a popular conversation. Let's put it that way: people aren't talking about the end of their lives nearly enough to yeah. get things right, and then it's, it sneaks up on us and it. It's opening up, though. It is. You know, the, Atul Gawande wrote a book yep. recently, a huge yep. bestseller. Yep. And, Being moral. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, great book. You know, when people ask me my thoughts on life and death and reincarnation and all that, um, I, I think of water. Mm-hmm. I think a life is like a raindrop, and that's that's our identity, our ego. I'm this raindrop falling from the sky and then when we die is when we hit the ocean so the raindrop's gone but the substance persists and part of it all yeah flows yeah thank you man this has been a wonderful day thank you super fun glad we reconnected on the island here yeah continued the conversation (laughs) yeah let's get out of here before the mosquitoes (laughs) start storming Thanks for doing this. Do you have a you have a website, right? Yeah. What is yeah. it? It's uh, my name Wallace the letter J Nichols dot org, and that's just sort of it's like my locker online, just just uh, where you throw stuff. your sweaty gym yeah. pants. Yeah. And so you'll find strap. it all in there. Right. Thanks, man. He said, "Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day." For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you ever know.
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 